When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. I'm Jared Halverson. This is Unshaken, and today we'll be covering the book of Judges in the Old Testament. In some ways, this is the sequel of what we studied last week in the book of Joshua. And in other ways, more than continuation, it might be counterpart of the book of Joshua. Because both Joshua and Judges have to do with the conquest of Canaan, but they each tell kind of a different story. In the book of Joshua, the conquest seems to be complete. Uh, they've conquered the promised land. They've divvied everything up by way of land of inheritance. And yeah, there might be a, a few wandering Canaanites here or there. Uh, they weren't able to conquer Jerusalem from the Jebusites, for example. But for the most part, the promised land does seem to have come into the possession of the house of Israel. Now today in the book of Judges, it tells a bit of a different story. The conquest is far from complete. There seem to be Canaanites all over the place uh, and some challenges for the Israelites that, that, that those, those neighbors present to them. Uh, if, if it were me teaching the book of jo uh, Judges, and I guess it is today, so, so you're stuck with my perspective. Uh, if I were to make a Broadway musical about the book of Judges, uh, not that anyone would, um, it would be probably too bloody for, for general viewership. But I would, there'd be an amazing cast of characters, I'll say that much. Uh, it would be both male and female leads, which is exciting. Uh, some of them you are familiar with. We'll get to hang out with Deborah today. Samson, uh, you know. Uh, perhaps you are aware of Gideon or Jephthah. There'll be others. Uh, Ehud, uh, that you might not be quite as familiar with, or Abimelech. Uh, but there's an amazing cast of characters. If I were to, to present it on stage, though, it would be one of those, if you ever got to see Les Miserables uh, on Broadway uh, or on stage somewhere, that at least when I got to go, it was on a circular uh, platform on the stage that rotated. Uh, and it was an amazing thing to watch. You'd see Jean Valjean marching across the stage where he was stationary, basically, and the scenery was passing before and behind him. And the reason I would, I would portray the book of Judges on a rotating stage is I don't know if there's a better book in Scripture to portray the, the circular, rotating nature of life as far as the Pride Cycle is concerned. Now, those of you that are most familiar with the Book of Mormon, you know the Pride Cycle because you go through it repeatedly in the Book of Mormon where people are righteous for a time, but then they start getting complacent they start forgetting that the fact that they are, have been blessed at all is because of the, the goodness of God. They begin taking credit for it themselves. That's the rise of pride. And as a result, they forget God, kick Him out of their lives, and then are left to their own strength, which isn't much. As a result, the enemies come on, to the, come on they end up destroying them, and so that pride leading to wickedness leads to destruction, which then leads to, if not humility, at least humiliation. Uh, and sometimes there's some overlap between those two. But if they have been brought to their knees, well, while they're down there, you might start praying. And as they begin to turn back to God and repent of their sins, then God, the great deliverer, is always there to, 
to provide them some kind of relief. And through that deliverance, uh, they begin to, well, through that repentance, they begin to be righteous. And with that righteousness, they begin to be prospered by God. And with that prosperity, we're back up and running for however long it takes for people to get prideful again and begin once again to forget God. There's, it's this endless cycle that, we, like I said, we see in the Book of Mormon, but we see so repeatedly in close quarters here in the book of Judges. So picture our judges walking across the stage as everything rotates around them. And uh, you could even picture uh, on, the, on the set some kind of oh, demarcation that now we're in the righteousness stage. Or now we're in the pride stage. And now we're in the wickedness stage and destruction and repentance and, and, and deliverance. We're going to see that so many times today. In fact, I'll say this by way of uh, overall summary. Years ago, I've told you this before, when I was going to teach Old Testament for the first time in seminary, I'd studied it before, but I wanted it to be fresh in my mind, so I looked at the calendar and realized I could study, I could finish it again if I read a book a day. Uh, and so I rolled up my sleeves and set out for that. Uh, when I sat down to read the book of Judges in one sitting, uh, I'd read it before, but very slowly. And so one day you get this judge, and then the next day they, things kind of fall apart. The day after that, they repent. But it's kind of so gradual over a long time that you don't see the cycle oh, spin quite as quickly as you do when you sit down and read the whole thing at once. But that one summer, as I sat there in my, in my office studying the book of Judges, it, the cycle went so fast Again, that rotating stage was spinning out of control. And that's exactly what Israel was in the book of Judges. Out of control. Continuously falling back into bad habits and old sins. Idolatry and, and intermingling with the wicked influences that were not just around them, but right alongside them. Again, the conquest of Canaan was far from complete. But because I was doing it all at once... The cycle kept going over and over and over, and every new judge is a new round of the pride cycle. That might be the simplest way to kind of wrap your brain around the book of Judges. Every time there's a new judge, it's because Israel has hit rock bottom, they've come to their senses, they've begun to repent, and God gives them a new deliverer, a new judge, who then cries repentance and brings the people to their senses and fights the enemy, whether they're Ammonites or Moabites or... Canaanites or Philistines, we'll meet more and more of them today. And the people have peace, but only for a season until they're back down to their pride and forgetfulness and wickedness, bringing on destruction. I read it so fast and went through the pride cycle so quickly, so many times, I honestly started feeling dizzy. Like, again? Seriously? I, in fact... I'll confess here, I started getting a little frustrated. Well, very frustrated with Israel, but even a little frustrated with God because he kept bailing them out. I remember after, I don't know, round seven to eight, ten, whatever it was, just thinking, seriously, God, you know what they're going to do. Just wait for another column on the scriptural page, and I bet they'll be back to destruction and wickedness again. And, uh, yep, sure enough, didn't even make it to the next page. And I remember thinking... At the time, God, why do you keep forgiving them when you know they're going to blow it in a page or two? And right there in the middle of that kind of silent conversation with heaven, I felt the clearest impression I've ever had in the book of Judges. 
and it was simply the Lord answering my question. Why do I keep bailing them out when I know that they're far from perfect? Because I do the same thing with you. And boy, was I humbled. Boy, did that pull me out of my mini pride cycle as I was thinking, why be so merciful to them, not realizing how merciful the Lord has been with me. And so as we go through the spin cycle today, and on, on, you can space it out all, all over the week, but for me, it'll be one sitting going through the 21 chapters of Judges. Uh, forgive me if I start to look a little queasy halfway through. It's just me getting dizzy on this rotating stage. Uh, but as the pride cycle turns and turns and turns today, I pray that it helps us turn our hearts to God. And in as much as it is possible, to get to the deliverance stage by coming to know the Deliverer, if we know Him well enough, we can stay there. And our, our deliverance and prosperity need never turn into pride and destruction, as long as we keep our eyes on the source of our deliverance. I testify of God's goodness, and we will see it time after time after time today. So keep an eye out for it. Now, if I had to summarize the book of Judges, uh, scripturally, I would turn to the book of Nehemiah. Uh, not that we are, are often tempted to turn to Nehemiah. Nehemiah who? What? Well, I want to turn to Nehemiah chapter 9 and just give you a few verses that summarize the entire book. Because that will help put in perspective, A, the pride cycle, and B, how it flows throughout the narrative in the book of Judges. You see, by Nehemiah chapter 9, we're at the end of Israelite history, as far as Old Testament is concerned, and we're getting a flashback to do a very quick summary of the history of Israel leading to that point. Uh, and this is, these are the few verses that describe the book of Judges. This is Nehemiah chapter 9, starting in verse 25. And they took strong cities and a fat land, and possessed houses full of all goods, wells digged, vineyards and oliveyards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they did eat and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in thy great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against thee and cast thy law behind their backs. Does that description remind you of Moses' warning at the end of Deuteronomy and Joshua's reminder and warning at the end of Joshua that God's going to give you a land for which you did not labor? You'll drink from wells you didn't dig and eat from vineyards that you didn't plant? And remember Moses' great caution, beware lest ye forget the Lord. Well, we see in the book of Judges, and we see in Nehemiah's flashback, that's exactly what happened. They ended up forgetting the God who, who gave them all of these things. They remember their blessings. They just forgot about those blessings' source and became fat, as it says here. Uh, it, that reminds me of Brigham Young's famous statement, warning the saints that we've already been through the two big P's. I'm just worried about the third P. The first P was persecution. It just made us stronger. The second P was poverty. And as they endure those early years in Utah, eating seagull uh, lily bulbs, uh, they, they made it through poverty too, and all the stronger for it. It was the third, prosperity, that Brother Brigham was most concerned about. The way he said it in classic Brigham Young language, the worst fear that I have about this people is that they will get rich in this country, forget God and his people, wax fat, there's that same reminder from Nehemiah, wax fat and kick themselves out of the church and go to hell. 
Doesn't that sound like Brother Brigham? This people will stand mobbing, robbing, poverty, and all manner of persecution. There's those other two Ps. And be true. But my greater fear for them is that they cannot stand wealth. There's the prosperity. There's the pride that seems to kick the pride cycle into gear. So Brigham Young's worried about that in pioneer time. Nehemiah is worried about that for his people because they're just kind of coming around uh, the, the cycle themselves to be able to return to Israel and rebuild after their latest destruction. But he's looking back to judges going, guys, we've been at this a long time. When are we going to finally figure it out? And then two last verses from Nehemiah 9, verse 27. Therefore thou, God, deliverest them into the hand of their enemies, pride led to destruction, who vexed them. And in the time of their trouble, now that they've been brought to their knees, when they cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven, and according to thy manifold mercies, thou gavest them saviors, who saved them out of the hand of their enemies. Ah, that's what we need to be looking for in the book of Judges today. The manifold mercies of God. That's what God was trying to remind me of. I forgive them over and over and over because I do the same thing for you. You and I have been recipients of the manifold mercies of God. And when we cry out for deliverance, who does he send? Well, in every case, he sends the capital S, Savior. But here in Nehemiah, he refers to saviors with a lowercase s who've come to save them from their enemies. Now, Nehemiah calls them saviors, and I love that he does. In our material today, we call them judges. Uh, passing judgment on the wickedness of Israel, but also passing judgment on their repentance so that they can move them toward a deliverance, even if that deliverance only seems to be momentary. One last verse, Nehemiah 9:28. We see the cycle begin again. But after they had rest, they did evil again before thee. Therefore, leftest thou them in the hand of their enemies, so that they had the dominion over them. Yet, when they returned and cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven, and many times didst thou deliver them according to thy mercies. There, in a matter of, what, four verses, we have seen a synopsis of the book of Judges. I guess if you don't have much time this week, I guess you can, you can hit stop right now. <laughs> that, that covers it. But to be able to watch each round of the Pride Cycle unfold, let's dive back into the, into the book of Judges and see it firsthand. Now, chapter 1 picks up where Joshua left off. But, like I said, it admits that the conquest of Canaan was far from complete. In verse 1, now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord. Now notice this is just collective children of Israel. It's not a specific leader. We're going to see repeatedly today in the book of Judges that they had no king. There was no one unified, uh, the house of Israel is gathering around a particular prophet or leader. Uh, but they're collectively asking God for, for help. They said, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? Now, again, this sounds like, wait, who's going to go up against the Canaanites? We already beat them. We already drove them out of the land, didn't we? Well, to a degree, but there still seems to be much uh, promised land yet to conquer. The Lord responds in verse 2. He says, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have delivered the land into his hand. Now, you'll recall that Judah is the tribe of political leadership. The scepter shall not depart from his hand. We'll see that with David and Solomon and the, all the kings of Judah after the north and southern, so, northern and southern kingdoms split. 
It seems fitting, by the way, that Judah would lead the way, not just because of that political preeminence, but because Judah, the tribe that Jesus comes from, there's a good symbol as well. Who's going to help lead the way to help us conquer our promised land? Well, look no further than Jesus Christ. In verse 3, Judah then says to Simeon, his brother, and these are tribes we're talking, the tribe of Judah says to the tribe of Simeon, Come up with me into my lot, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with thee into thy lot. So Simeon went with him. If you remember in the book of Joshua, the tribe of Judah had more space than they needed. And so they turned to Simeon and said, why don't you dwell among us? And Simeon becomes the donut hole, uh, surrounded by the land inheritance of the tribe of Judah uh, all around him. It's a great example of unity, of working together on this. I love the way they say it. You come up with me, and likewise, I will go up with you. And to see... I mean, that's how people would plant their, their fields in pioneer time. That's how they would build their homes as the community gathers for a barn raising, for example. And we're all here to help you. And we pray that you'll be all in when it's time to help me. And so it was with Judah and Simeon. Judah's battles are then described. Sounds like everything's going great. But then in verse 19, And the Lord was with Judah, and he drave out the inhabitants of the mountain, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. So here, the victory is far from complete. Some enemies are simply too deeply rooted in to ever root them out. Uh, and so how are we going to handle the presence of Canaanites down there in the valley? We'll see the problems that come when you haven't completely driven out uh, enemy influences from your life leaving, oh, just a few minor sins hanging around. No, it needs to be complete conquest, and we're going to see the problems that come because they didn't do it. That seems to be the common thread throughout the rest of Judges chapter 1. In verse 21, it's the Benjamites. The children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem. In 27, neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Bethshan and, and her towns and several others. 29, neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer. 30, neither did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of, and then lists a few cities. Verse 31, neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko and elsewhere. 33, neither did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh as well as others. I mean, you fly through Judges chapter 1, and it's almost like you're ticking off down through the, the, the tribes of Israel and realizing, did anybody pull it off? Uh, it doesn't seem like it. And though they all have their lands of inheritance now, it's not a complete conquest. There was a great talk from Elder Christofferson years ago where he talked about we cannot be satisfied by leaving the, the least vestiges of sin within us. We can't be oh, lulled into some false sense of security. And we'll see that over and over again today through these rounds of the pride cycle. We can't be lulled into that false sense of security thinking that I'm pretty good. I'm on the Lord's half. Isn't that enough to be on the Lord's side? Oh, I the Lord cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. And so... Benjamin, or Manasseh, or Ephraim, or Zebulun, or Asher, and Naphtali, you name it. You need to conquer everything. Elder Holland said it powerfully, that in this war that we're in, this battle for our souls, we cannot afford to be casual Christians. 
And then in language I hope I never forget, he said, because if we are casual Christians, we will end up becoming Christian casualties. And that's what we'll see today. Christian casualties. Jewish casualties in this case. But people that were, that were conquered by Canaanites, spiritually speaking, because they did not conquer Canaan fully when they came into the promised land. You see in verse 28, we see some of the reasons. It came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites to tribute and did not utterly drive them out. We saw hints of that back in Joshua last week as well. Uh, when we're weak, I guess it's not our fault. Uh, I mean, they're up against chariots of iron after all. The Canaanites seem to have better military technology than the Israelites did. But then again, Israelites, you had the power of God on your side. The walls will come tumbling down, right, in Jericho? But if we don't have God, then of course we're not going to, to win. That's the problem with the Battle of Ai we saw last week. Well, with all these battles today, when you were weak, we couldn't drive them out. But here, what about when you're strong? Why didn't you drive them out then? Well, why destroy them or drive them out when you can tax them? And you can have them do some of your dirty work. Oh, surely. I mean, we're big enough. We can drive them out later uh, if we need to. But in the meantime, they're paying our bills. That's kind of nice. And I think, unfortunately, too often we leave sins in our lives because we think they're doing something for us. Uh, I love what Clayton Christensen said from a business perspective, that we're not buying objects. Rather, we are hiring workers to do our jobs. He gave a great uh, analogy of, of milkshakes in the morning on commute uh, where he was trying to help McDonald's, I think it was, figure out how to uh, increase their bottom line. And they realized through all of these surveys and questionnaires that people wanted milkshakes in the morning just to get through a horrible commute. It wasn't so much that I was buying a milkshake. It was that I was hiring a milkshake to provide me some relief from rush hour traffic. And that to me is interesting. What are, we, what are we hiring? And what are we hiring those things to do? In this case, what kept Israel from fully conquering Canaan was that they decided to hire Canaanites to do some of their work for them. Oh, we can just put them to tribute and tax them. And then we're, we're getting ahead. And I, if, if we were mindful enough to really think through our sins and the temptations we haven't fully rejected. Oh, don't, don't come today, but stay close. In those cases, ask yourself, ponder this, pray about this. What am I hiring that sin to do? Why do I want it to stay close? What perceived positive is it bringing into my life that seems somehow to overshadow all the negatives that come in the aftermath. If the Israelites were to ask themselves those kinds of questions, I don't think they would have let all these Canaanites remain in the land, the land of promise. Well, turn the page then. In Judges chapter 2, we see the pride cycle really laid out before us. Uh, the, the author of Judges really is trying to help us see this is what we're in for. Okay, So buckle up and get ready to get dizzy. Chapter 2, verse 1. An angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, 
I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you unto the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. As the story here really unfolds, there's this clear reminder coming from a heavenly messenger himself. God brought you here because he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob he would. That was the covenant he made, and God keeps his covenant. That begs the question, will you keep yours? Verse 2, he reminds them, You shall make no league, no alliances, with the inhabitants of this land. You shall throw down their altars. There's removing the temptation to follow false gods. Uh, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have ye done this? Now that is the ultimate question to ponder. I love that he puts it right back into their, into their hands. Uh, this is what things have been like so far. Okay, God brought you out of Egypt for a purpose. He removed you from those outside influences. And when you came here, you were supposed to remove outside influences that were around you. You failed to do so. Okay, you didn't hearken to, my, my, to God's words. And my question for you, and I really do want you to answer it. Why have ye done this? I don't think that's a rhetorical question. I don't think this angel is just frustrated, thinking, Oh, guys, come on, why, why, why do you, does this keep happening? No, I'm calm. I'm, I'm being careful. I'm trying to be clear. Can you please explain yourself? I'm not trying to publicly shame you here. Instead, I'm trying to help you vocalize, which requires putting some thought into it. And how would I explain myself here? As I've said before, my wife is an addiction recovery counselor. And she was working at one facility with a, wonder, a bunch of wonderful clients that had gotten themselves into deep holes and, and real messes and were trying uh, diligently and valiantly to, to come out of, of those pits. And my wife described a fascinating thing that reminded me, uh, that this verse reminded me of. You see, a lot of where she, where, where the time that she spends is at inpatient facilities where people are living uh, on site to fully remove themselves from the alcohol or substance abuse problems that are out there. Uh, it gives them a chance to get their feet underneath them. And whether it takes a month or two to build a little bit of momentum in hopes that they're ready to be able to go back out and face the influences that will surround them. Well, there are all kinds of rules that need to be followed. And many of them are to protect the clients from themselves and from others uh, as far as temptation is concerned. And, and so there's all kinds of, and, and plus they're just, we're all living under the same roof. And so we got to learn how to deal with things. And we're all going through really hard things and detox and trying to get uh, some, some movement towards recovery. Uh, it's amazing to hear stories from my wife and my son on his service mission there. Uh, it, it's amazing to see what these people are going through. But there are, like I said, lots of rules. And unfortunately, a lot of times those rules get broken. Well, here's the part that fascinates me. How do you oh, discipline adults? Uh, and, and how do you help them see the reason for those rules? Well, there's a process that my wife uh, and her team uh, uses that's called giving an awareness. And if somebody does something major uh, or minor, even things like, oh, you didn't clean up after yourself, or you didn't put the dishes away, or you're leaving your room a mess and that's affecting uh, the other people that, are, that, are, that have to live here with you. Uh, there's this, they give them an awareness. And so I just want you to be aware of what it is that you've done. 
Now, I, I think my wife said after three giving of an awareness, the person themselves has to give an awareness of what they've done. They have to write something and then present it to the rest of the people that are there, clients as well as staff, uh, and they, they read their awareness. And again, it's not about shaming them. And my wife said, it's amazing to see how honest people and self-aware people become. Because as they give this awareness, what they're supposed to do is explain, this is what I did. The, this was the justification and rationalization I was giving myself to convince me that it was okay to do that. In other words, this was my faulty line of reasoning that led me to do that. Next step. This is how that kind of faulty reasoning relates to the faulty reasoning that makes me think I can get away with one more drink or one more oh, fall into, into drug use. And my wife said, it's amazing to watch the awareness that's why they call it that, to give an awareness, the self-awareness that comes, not just I did something wrong, but this is why I did it. This is what emotional need was pushing me and driving me towards something that was negative. And this is what I was telling myself as I went down that path. And this is what it's going to look like if I get out of here and stay along those faulty lines of reasoning, and it's going to lead me right back to drugs or alcohol like before. She says those are some of the most open, honest, vulnerable, self-aware conversations that they have in, in these recovery facilities. And it's amazing to watch the change that it brings within the client. And to see the, this angel as we begin the book of Judges, Israel has had problems <laughs> for time immemorial. We saw it in Exodus. We saw it in Numbers. We saw it in Deuteronomy and Judges. And we'll see it over and over today in, in Judges. But to ask and answer that question, why have ye done this? Next time we sin, let's take some time becoming more self-aware as to why we're in this mess. Move on, verse 3. Wherefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. Here we see what leads them into the next step, wickedness and pride leading to destruction. You have driven me out of your life through your wickedness, and therefore I cannot drive out these evil influences from your life. You've got to pick which one you're going to get rid of, God or the devil. Which one you're going to hold to, uh, no man can serve two masters, right? And if you leave them, they will be a snare. We saw that word repeatedly. And almost every time it shows up in the Old Testament, it has to do with evil influence. And there, that's a trap that you have allowed your enemies to set for yourself. The other phrase, they will be thorns in your sides. Can you think of Saul slash Paul when the risen Lord appears to him on the road to Damascus and says, Paul or Saul still, you've been kicking against the pricks. That's a cattle goad, a cattle prod, and you're kicking back against it. I'm just trying to nudge you in the right direction. And so perhaps by leaving the enemy around you to cause you problems, to bring you into bondage, it will be a, a mini Egyptian experience all over again. And hopefully that will wake you up, 
kicking against that prick, being goaded by that prod, my hope is that by leaving these thorns in your side, it will wake you up and help you move forward. In verse 4, it came to pass when the angel of the Lord spake these words unto all the children of Israel, that the people lifted up their voice and wept. Interesting, their reaction. They wept. They've been told all of these things before. <laughs> Moses said it repeatedly. Joshua has given them these warnings. Well, here it comes from an angel of the Lord. And it's as if it's really dawning on them. Maybe they finally are self-aware. And, and they're weeping, hopefully out of godly sorrow. We keep getting ourselves into these messes. Can we turn to the Lord so he can get us out of them? In verse 7, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, looking back, all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. That's almost an exact repetition of what we saw at the end of the book of Joshua last week. But that again begs the question, how long will institutional memory last? Joshua's around, oh, we remember all these experiences we've had. The people who outlive him, but it's that same generation that, that crossed the Jordan, that conquered the land for the most part. Uh, and as long as they're around, they can remind us of those stories. But what happens when that generation passes on? You see, Joshua dies here. And in verse 10, also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. This actually sounds like the beginning of the book of Exodus. A Pharaoh arose who knew not Joseph, and no wonder there's years and centuries of bondage. Same thing here. In some ways, Judges is our repetition of Exodus, this mini Egyptian bondage to all of these other Canaanite tribes. Here comes a generation that just doesn't know God. If you think about the passing of the greatest generation that is happening all around us, uh, will we remember the level of sacrifice that was required to win World War II? To think about the oh, early pioneers. And it used to be that when fast and testimony meeting took place in Pioneer, Utah, the ones that were allowed to bear their testimonies first were the ones that knew Joseph Smith personally. And to hear from that, just living witnesses, well, as time went on, there were fewer and fewer survivors that still knew Joseph. Or how about, I've mentioned this before, it's only recently that we lost our last apostle who was alive in 1978 to give personal witness of the revelation that changed the world as far as priesthood is concerned. This generation has died out. And who's left to remember the God of their deliverance? That seems to be no one. And so the pride cycle begins. Notice it began with forgetfulness and a lack of knowledge, intimate knowledge of God. So here's stage one, wickedness. Verse 11 and 12, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Of course they're going to. They don't even know there's a Lord that has sight over them. They served Baalim or Balaam as we usually pronounce it, which just means lords, uh, masters. They're serving false gods, the gods of the land. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt. So that's my, that's my parents' God. That's just family tradition. It has nothing to do with me. And they followed other gods of the gods of the people that were round about them, and bowed themselves unto them, and provoked the Lord to anger. So notice the order there. It begins with forgetfulness. And once you forget, then you forsake 
But having forsaken one leader, you end up following another. We all, we all follow someone or something. We always put something as our priority. And then that, that's the object of our faith. And then we repent to go into line with that, right? We, we just see the fourth article of faith unfold in whatever direction. For them, they replaced the God of Israel with lesser deities. And it was this gradual decline, this descent into idolatry. And where does that lead in our pride cycle? Well, spin the stage. And now we're at destruction. Verse 14, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he delivered them into the hands of spoilers that spoiled them. Those are those thorns in the flesh we just saw. He sold them into the hands of their enemies round about so that they could not any longer stand before their enemies. Interesting, he sold them, which suggests that he owned them to begin with. Well, it was my peculiar people, at least that was my intention for you, but to sell them into the hands of enemies because... You wouldn't, allow your, you wouldn't allow me to claim ownership. So instead, instead of me buying you with a price, as Paul would say, you have sold yourselves for nothing. And you've exchanged me for a far crueler master. We're breaking relationships here. As that's what happens when we break covenants. Now, as a result of that destruction, what happens? Well, it brings us to our knees, which, like I said, is a great place to begin praying. And so that leads to us being humbled and brought to repentance. That's verse 15 for you. Whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn unto them. And they were greatly distressed. So here, finally, they've been brought down to the depths of humility. They were greatly distressed. They've hit rock bottom. There's nowhere to go but up. If you look up and start turning to the Lord. In some ways, it reminds me of Thomas B. Marsh, uh, like we studied last year in the Doctrine and Covenants. At one point, president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, but left the church because of his pride. That pride brought him low, and eventually, well, on his knees, he crawled his way back to the covenant. And as he came to Utah and met with the, the saints, he asked them for their forgiveness, having already asked God for his. But the way he put it, fascinating, he said, if you leave God, and if he loves you, and which he does, then prepare your backs for a good whipping. <laughs> Interesting the way he put that, because God will, will whip you back into shape, so to speak. At least he will, well, that's the, that's the thorns in the side. That's the, the kicking against the pricks. I'm trying to nudge you in the right direction, out of love. And so here they are, greatly distressed. What happens next? If you repent in that position... Then comes deliverance. That's verse 16. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges, which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. God really does give them another chance, a whole new exodus. But what happens next? Unfortunately, if we take our eyes off of our deliverer, pride and wickedness rises up once again. Verse 17. Yet they would not hearken unto their judges. But they went a-whoring after other gods and bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. Interesting language there. They went a-whoring after other gods. There's that covenant infidelity where idolatry and adultery are basically the same thing. We've been cheating on God. Think of it in those terms, and hopefully it'll scare us away from going a-whoring after, after lesser things. And then when he said that they turned quickly out of the way, 
Oh, it's amazing how fast the stage can rotate through the stages of the pride cycle. But what's next? Well, repentance and deliverance, if they'll change. Verse 18, when the Lord raised them up judges, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For it repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. Well, take that repentance with a grain of salt. It's not God that is repenting. Better translation, he is moved with pity, with compassion, as he sees people finally crying out to him for deliverance. Oh, there's, there's Mormon at the end of the Book of Mormon, seeing people in sorrow and hoping that it's godly sorrow that leads to real repentance. Unfortunately, that's not always what it is. Another round quickly begins. Verse 19, it came to pass when the judge was dead that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and to bow down unto them. They ceased not from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. Notice those added details. It was even more than their fathers. Huh, so it seems like things are getting worse. We're not just looking for specific things happening. We're looking for trends to develop. And if the pride cycle, as we rotate round and round, if it's getting worse and worse as we go, then we're headed in the wrong direction. And so if it's worse than your father's, beware, turn things around. Don't go after your own doings or your stubborn way. Just had a great conversation with our own kids about stubbornness and what causes it. And we tended to agree it was pride that did it. It was this Oh, false sense of independence that I don't have to listen to you. I don't want to admit that I might be wrong, that I might need to have an awareness and admit some faulty reasoning on my part. No, my stubborn way, I'm holding to it. Well, if you do, then what comes next? Well, it's destruction. That is the law of the harvest. So 20 and 21, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel and he said, because that this people hath transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and have not hearkened unto my voice, I also will not henceforth drive out any from before them of the nations which Joshua left when he died. There's those remaining thorns that hopefully will poke and prod Israel back in the right direction. Verse 22, that through them I may prove Israel, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk therein, as their fathers did keep it, or not. And that's their choice. That's their test. In fact, that's our test too. I'm so grateful that before we get into any specific stories in the book of Judges, we get chapter 2 to put all of those stories in proper perspective. Uh, here's the, the template. Here's the, the map of this, of this book, and it's the stages of the pride cycle. We're just going to insert judge after judge after judge in the deliverance stage. We'll watch them deliver Israel. We'll watch Israel then turn back to their own wickedness, gr growing out of their, their prideful forgetfulness and stubborn way. And then another destruction by, based on whatever Canaanite flavor of the week it happens to be, until Israel is brought to their knees, turned back to God, and he descends another savior. He brings them another judge. We're going to see this begin to unfold starting in chapter 3. Get to about verse 5 and 6, and you'll see Israel mixing and intermingling, and worse, intermarrying 
with the Canaanite nations that are all around them. There, and unfortunately, when you have different spiritual levels coming together in one, it tends to be, unfortunately, a lowering to a lowest common denominator. And Israel descending to the level of the Canaanites spiritually, as opposed to the Canaanites being brought up to the level of the Israelites. So watch the pride cycle round number one. Verse seven, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served Balaam and the groves. There's our counterfeit father and mother, master and tree of life. So evil, wickedness, forgetfulness, there's our pride, leading to verse eight, Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. He sold them into the hand of Chushan Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia, and the children of Israel served Chushan Rishathayim eight years. There's our destruction stage. Rishathayim, by the way, great nickname here. I doubt uh, his mother named him this, but this is what he looked like in the Israelites' eyes, because Rishathayim means double wickedness. So Chushan of the double wickedness. This guy was the worst thing we'd ever seen. He did twice as bad as anything that we had imagined. Verse 9, when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, so they've been brought to their knees, the Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel who delivered them. Here's our first judge, round one of the pride cycle. Even Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. So there's their humility and repentance. And I love the fact that this first judge is is related to Caleb. Give me this mountain, Caleb. Cross the Jordan River, Caleb. I mean, this is a chip off the old block. And uh, what would Uncle Caleb do in this circumstance? Well, I'll do the same thing. And Othniel does take on this mountain. Verse 10, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. He judged Israel and went out to war, and the Lord delivered Chushan Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed against Chushan Rishathayim. Just a fun name to say. There's deliverance through the power of God. It's that same power that their pride had alienated and then left to their own devices. We've said this before. If you think you can do it on your own, God will let you try. And that's when we crash and burn and hopefully turn back to him. It was the spirit of God that descended upon Othniel. It was the power of God that delivered Israel from this king of Mesopotamia. And verse 11, the land had rest 40 years. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Well, end of round one, quick one. How about round two, verse 12? Well, the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. You getting dizzy yet? Now this time the enemy is going to be the Moabites. Uh, the king there is named Eglon. He's going to recruit the Ammonites and the Amalekites to help him because everybody's intimidated by the Israelites by now. Now, the one thing you need to know about Eglon, he's most famous for his, his size. He is massively overweight, okay? Morbidly obese, and morbid is going to be a good word for what happens to him. The judge at this time is a man from the tribe of Benjamin. His name is Ehud. And what's most famous about him is that he's left-handed. Now, does that matter? Well, in this case, it does. I think it's interesting that often God will raise up a deliverer with unique gifts. And in this case, for Ehud, it was his left-handedness. Because if you're a righty, uh, then your sword is usually going to be strapped onto your left side so you can reach down across yourself and unsheathe it. Uh, and so if somebody's kind of patting you down uh, to see if you are armed, they're going to check your left side. Meanwhile, the rarity of a southpaw, a left-hander, left 
is that their sword, in Ehud's case, his dagger, could be strapped onto his right side and cross your fingers, your enemy might not look and see that you're armed. Now, that's exactly what happens here, because in order to uh, deliver Israel from the bondage uh, of the Moabites, Ehud straps on a dagger, a foot and a half long, that's about a good length for a thigh. That's what he does. He straps it onto his right thigh and goes to present himself to King Eglon, uh, saying, oh, I'm, I'm here with a gift. Well, it was a gift, all right, but it was a gift for Israel, not for, the, for Eglon. Now, Eglon, say, he says, okay, fine, yeah, come on in. And, the, and, and Ehud says, well, without your servants. This is a secret just between the two of us. Oh, okay, fine. Uh, he's unarmed, right? Oh, yeah, we, we, checked his, we checked his left side. Well, the servants leave. Ehud comes in to Eglon, and this is where it gets a little morbid, as I said. I don't think I'd show this on my rotating stage. But what ends up happening is this valiant left-hander, Ehud, reaches to his right thigh, unsheaves this foot-and-a-half-long dagger, and plunges it into Eglon's gut. And it is so big that the entire foot-and-a-half dagger enters haft, or haft and all. So even the handle is in there. And as, as Ehud tries to reach his hand back out, it's, the whole thing is like swallowed up in Eglon's fat, and, and Ehud's lucky to get his hand back out. Uh, he then uh, leaves and thanks the servants and, uh, who think that nothing has happened. And it's only after the passage of time that the servants keep knocking on the locked door of the king's chamber and finally break in to find their king dead. And Israel ready to fight for their own freedom, which they obtain. Now, as disgusting as that story is, and we'll see some more disgusting ones uh, today in the book of Judges, I do think there's something powerful about a symbolic or metaphoric take on this. To think about gorging ourselves on the wickedness of the world. Uh, Overeating evil, can we put it that way? That's Eglon for you. And here come the consequences of your sin. Here's the dagger of the deliverer, Ehud. And for it to come and destroy you, to have brought an evil to the point that there's no bringing it out again. Does that make sense? There seems to be a sense here of Israel overeating evil and now bearing the consequences. And if you bring evil into you deep enough, will you ever be able to draw it out again? We hope so. Well, that's that second deliverer. The third we meet in verse 31. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, which slew of the Philistines 600 men with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. Great symbolism there, too. We saw the thorns in the side. We saw kicking against the pricks. Well, here is an ox goad. That's all we get from Shamgar. We don't know really anything else about him. We've seen our third judge. We've seen our third enemy. We had Mesopotamia. We had Moab. Now we've got Philistines. You name it, Satan's going to attack you from any angle. And what is it that's going to prod us into repentance and continued righteousness? Well, that's what Shamgar uses. Here's his ox goad. Is God pushing us and prodding us in the right direction? He's trying. Will we accept it? That's up to us. Now, like we said, chapter 2 was, we're not even going to fill in the blanks yet, but here's the basic outline 
of the pride cycle. Chapter three, let's fly through it three different times and to kind of get some momentum building here so we understand the concept. Uh, lesser known judges, until you get to chapter four with one of the more famous ones. And this, one, this time we get a female lead uh, for this round. Her name is Deborah. This time it's the Canaanites who are the enemy. Uh, the captain of the Canaanites, uh, the army, is named Sisera. We'll see his demise today. He has 900 chariots of iron. So this is an enemy that is a, a daunting one. Well, not for Deborah, but it was daunting for the person you would have assumed would have been the judge here, which is the leader of the Israelite army. We'll meet him in a moment. In verse 4, Deborah is worth meeting first. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at that time. And she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in Mount Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now, we might look at this and go, wow, a female judge? That's amazing. And yet here, it doesn't seem to raise any eyebrows whatsoever. Of course, well, who else are you going to talk to? Deborah is the best person you can, you can come to. In fact, you can come up to great detail there. They came up to her for judgment. And the best leaders are the type that are living at a higher level. So coming to them does elevate other people. And that's how Deborah's doing it. She's known as a prophetess. She's under this palm tree. There's, a, forget the counterfeit grove of Asherah. Come to the palm tree of Deborah. She's by Bethel, which means house of God. That's where Jacob's ladder was. She's an Ephraimite there, Mount Ephraim, and so oh, this birthright leadership tribe. And as it said, she's the wife of Lapidoth. Now, that's an interesting one because we have no idea who Lapidoth is. In fact, we don't even know if Lapidoth is a who. You see, the word translated here as wife can also simply mean woman. The woman of Lapidoth. And Lapidoth, since we don't know anything else about him slash it, it might not be a him at all. It might not be wife of a man named Lapidoth. It might be a woman of a place called Lapidoth. Now, even with that, we don't know much about, about it. And yet Lapidoth can also mean something like fire or light. Ah, oh, that's, that's even more fascinating. So forget the, the wife of some guy we don't, we've never heard of. Even forget a woman from some place we've never heard of. What if it simply is describing her as a woman of fire? A woman of brilliant light. Worth going up to meet? <laughs> you better believe it. This is a woman of great illumination. No wonder she is a judge in Israel. They come to her for judgment. Will you pass judgment upon this? This is like Lot at the city gate of Sodom. You're the one guy that's righteous enough for us to put our trust in and, and solve the problems here as best you can. Here is this female equivalent, Deborah, a prophetess, a woman of illumination, a great judge. In verse 6, she sent and called Barak, the son of Abinoam, out of Kadesh Naphtali, and said unto him, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, so this is God's commandment, not mine, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor, and take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali and of the children of Zebulun? I will draw unto thee to the river Kishon, Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into thine hand. Now, you would have thought at first glance that the judge in this round of the pride cycle would have been Barak. I mean, he's the leader of the captain of the hosts of, of the armies of Israel. 
But no, the judge here is, is Deborah. And it takes her call to arms to rally the troops and get Barak going. We're going to see more of that as we go. Will he trust God? Deborah does. Will he accept Deborah's strategy? Because she's explaining this. Are you kidding me? Uh, the, the armies of, of Sisera, there's 900 chariots of iron. I can't fight against that. Well, maybe you won't have to, Barak, if you'll trust God. Because as Deborah explains the strategy here, God will deliver him up to you at the river Kishon. Now, as we saw in crossing the Red Sea, uh, and as we've seen even in prior battles in the book of Joshua, chariots are an incredible military advantage. Unless they're bogged down in, in marshland or flooded uh, riverbeds, uh, to, then all of a sudden your advantage turns into a disadvantage. And that's exactly what's going to happen here. Uh, God can neutralize. I mean, forget Baal as the god of weather. We're going to see that with Elijah and the priests of Baal later on, right? Forget Baal sending, uh, sending water. This will be the god of Israel sending rain to, to raise the, the water level to the point that the chariots of, of Sisera are the worst thing he could have brought to the battle. The best thing would have been to bring your faith and trust in God. And that's what Deborah is calling for from Barak. Well, Barak is worried about this. We're going to see a lot of weak-willed people in the book of Judges. And Barak seems to be one of them. Verse 8, he said unto her, uh, If thou wilt go with me, then I will go. But if thou wilt not go with me, then I will not go. Now you can sense he's nervous about 900 chariots on the enemy sideline. What will I need on my sideline? I'm going to need an help meet for me. I'm going to need an enabling power. I'm going to need someone. I'm going to need a rib that can provide protection to the vital organs of Israel. I'm going to need Deborah, the prophetess, this woman of great illumination and great faith. And so she's willing to come. I see Eve here, obviously, as I just described it. I see... Oh, equal partners, male and female, coming toward the battle. And I won't go without you, but I will go with you. And that's an ideal marriage, if we're, if we're using this as a metaphor. It reminds me of Elder L. Tom Perry, whose wife passed away shortly after he was called to the Quorum of the Twelve. He said, I was grateful she lived long enough to see what she had made of me through our marriage. But he thought, having lost his partner, his eternal companion, and not feeling that anyone could ever take her place, he decided, well, I'm going to be the most productive apostle there's ever been. There's no reason to go home because there's no one to go home to. And so I can just work and work and work and serve and serve and serve. I'll be the most productive of all time. Well, after a, a while, he realized I'm the least productive I've ever been. I have no help meet for me. And realizing that in his case, he needed that companion so that equally yoked, they could march into battle together. That's when Elder Perry decided to remarry. We see that in President Nelson. We see it in President Oaks. It's just interesting to see, in this case, Barack, I can't go unless you go with me. In verse 9, she responds, I will surely go with thee, notwithstanding the journey that thou takest shall not be for thine honor, 
for the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Sorry to break it to you, Barak. This is not going to be a masculine victory. This is going to be a feminine one. And as far at the risk of, of overgeneralizing things or, or gendering things, the male model often seems to be the vertical one, and the female model often seems to be the horizontal one. We saw that back in, in the book of Moses when, in the aftermath of the fall. And, and Adam rejoices that I can still connect with God. And Eve rejoices that we're going to have posterity, honey. <laughs> okay, uh, Both are important, the vertical and the horizontal. We're proving a contrary here, right? And male and female is a very deep one. But I love that in this one, it's not going to be for your honor. This isn't a chance for you to stand out and be this mighty male deliverer. No, this is going to be God's feminine version uh, as Sisera falls to the hands of a woman. And it's going to bless all of Israel. This is going to be a horizontal victory. How does that happen? Well, watch the, the story unfold. Sisera gathers up his troops, his 900 chariots. There's a daunting sight. Uh, and Deborah, full of faith, there to reassure Barak, who's a little nervous here, as usual. She says to him in verse 14, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord hath delivered Sisera into thine hand. Is not the Lord gone out before thee? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor, and 10,000 men after him. You see, it was her encouragement that propelled him forward in the face of danger. She trusted God, and Barak trusted her. Oh, it was Elder Holland, someone on the level of Elder Holland, who said, I hadn't really thought much about a mission until I met Patricia, who'd thought a lot about a mission <laughs> and wanted to make sure that I would serve one. Elder Richard G. Scott, same thing, raised by inactive parents and not sure about his own spiritual path until an help meet came into his life. And help, remember that word, we studied it, ezer kenigdo, a help, only God is the help in, in those terms. And meet means pertaining to you, equal to you. And so to have an equal partner that enables you, this is grace. This is enabling power. And Deborah provides that for Barak. No wonder, since God is providing that to Deborah. In verse 15, the Lord discomfited Sisera and all his chariots and all his host with the edge of the sword before Barak. So just as Deborah had promised, God came through. But what does Sisera do? He lighted down off his chariot and fled away on his feet. The fact that he's trusting his feet more than his wheels, again, lets you know that what had seemed to be an advantage somehow had become a disadvantage. And so I'm just trying to take off as quickly as I can, this defeated enemy general, uh, and Sisera flees. Well, he happens to flee in the exact wrong direction. He thought he was going in the right direction. He ends up at the tent of a woman named Jael. Now, her husband had made some agreements to keep the peace with surrounding uh, Canaanites. And so when Sisera gets to this tent, out of breath, he feels like this is safe territory. Well, Jael is fine letting him assume that. And so what does she do? Verse 18, Jael went out to meet Sisera and said unto him, Oh, turn in, my lord, turn in to me. Fear not. Here is this wonderful, reassuring woman when he had turned in unto her into the tent, she covered him with a mantle. It's like, oh, you look 
you look tired. In fact, you look wet. Uh, you're probably a little cold. Uh, and so why don't you come in and lie down and I'll, I'll tuck you in. That's how kind I am. So she covers him with this mantle, this, this blanket. He said unto her, give me, I pray thee, a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. I mean, you have no idea how long I've been sprinting for my life. Well, I'll do you one better. Instead of some cold water, how about a little warm milk? She opened a bottle of milk. She gave him drink and covered him. Well, if you've been fighting a battle and then sprinting from your enemies and come into a place totally out of breath, exhausted, thirsty, and this kind woman is there to reassure you, all will be well. You'll be safe here. Uh, you, can, you can lie down and rest. I'll cover you up and tuck you in. Here's a little bit of warm milk. What, what's happening here? She is, th this is JL's lullaby. And she is lulling Sisera into a false sense of security. I mean, Satan does that to us all the time. But here is someone on God's side doing that to the enemy. Oh, you'll be fine. I mean, who, who am I? I'm just a little old lady. No one to worry about at all. Well, do you remember when we talked about all the female deliverers of the deliverer Moses back in Exodus 1 and 2? And when Pharaoh was concerned about the rising population of Israelites, he decided, oh, we need to kill all the little boys. Oh, little girls, oh, let them live. And back then I pointed out, oh, that was a bad mistake, Pharaoh. You underestimated the power of, and potential of the daughters of Israel. And that's, that's going to come back to haunt you. It's exactly what's happening here. Jael is proactive. She is courageous. The enemy general has just come to your tent. What are you going to do? Oh, I'm fine. No fear. Come on in. Nothing for you to fear either. Well, there was something for him to fear. And it was, it was this incredibly righteous woman in Israel, Jael. I love Judges 4. When I get to teach women in the scriptures, this is one of my favorite chapters. Because here you have the two heroes in, in this chapter are heroines. Deborah leading the charge alongside Barak, and then Jael in her tent, ready to take matters into her own hands. She does in verse 21. And again, this is, this is intense. This is morbid. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a nail of the tent. So a tent spike, the kind you drive into the ground so you can tie your cords around it to be able to keep the tent up. She took a, tail, a nail of the tent and took a hammer in her hand, and went softly unto him, just tiptoeing over this sleeping soldier. And she smote the nail into his temples and fastened it into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary. So he died. <laughs> yeah, you think? Uh, this, is, this is an intense verse. And that three-word sentence that ends it, so he died, is quite the understatement. But then again, this is a feminine victory. This is a woman with the courage to take matters into her own hands, literally, and not to shy away from the hard work that she's being asked to perform, but to muster her courage and to, to slay the enemy captain, something that even the army of Israel had been unable to do. By the way, this word nail is the same word used as 
the stakes in the tabernacle. Uh, the pins is what it was called back then, but it's the tent stakes. This is the same word used in Isaiah when he talks about the tent of Israel. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. That nail, in fact, speaking of nail, Isaiah also talks about a nail in a sure place. And that's the same word for this as well. I think there's powerful symbolism here of what Jael is, is doing and what she's using to do it. She does put a nail in a sure place, and she does so to deliver Israel. Now, chapter 4 ends with that, and then chapter 5 is a continuation of it. In fact, it's a song. I told you this was a female victory. Let's sing about it, shall we? And so just like crossing the Red Sea and separating yourself from the enemy because of a miraculous water miracle, uh, the destruction of Pharaoh with his chariots. This is a repetition of that kind of miracle. Uh, and what happens right after the end of crossing the Red Sea is that you have the song of Miriam, a female rejoicing over the miracles of God. And you get the same thing in Judges chapter 5. Verse 1, Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day. So we have the song of Deborah, just like we have the song of Miriam. And how does it begin? Saying, Praise ye the Lord for the avenging of Israel, when the people willingly offered themselves. Now, it's ironic that the song would begin that way, and that Deborah would sing it. Oh, these wonderful people who willingly offered themselves. Was it totally willing on Barak's part, or did he have it to be nudged along a bit? Well, yeah. And Deborah was doing the nudging. Same with the people. Up against Canaanites with... Almost a thousand chariots? There's no way. There is a way, and God is that way. So have faith in him and move forward. You see, it did take some leverage on the part of Deborah. And them trusting her judgment, we can do this. Them coming up to her level of faith. Them rejoicing in the light of her illumination, this woman of Lapidoth. Because Josephus, as he writes Jewish history and looks back on this battle, this is what he says. He says that Israel's army was so affrighted at the multitude of those enemies that they were resolved to march off had not Deborah retained them and commanded them to fight the enemy that very day for that they should conquer them and God would be their assistance. Oh, it's very humble of Deborah to sing about the willingness of the people when... <laughs> It wasn't so much their willingness as it was her iron will and her incredible faith in God to encourage them and to move them forward. In verse 4, the song continues, Lord, when thou wentest out of Seir, when thou marchest out of the field of Edom, the earth trembled, the heavens dropped, the clouds also dropped water. Oh, that's where you see this river Kishon. That's where you see the artillery of heaven being deployed in defense of Israel. That's, this is fishing river uh, for Zion's camp all over again. This is a, a water miracle like the parting of the Red Sea, the parting of the Jordan River. This time, the water is falling down and raising the river to the point that chariots are a disadvantage instead of an advantage. And she's rejoicing over that. And who's she giving credit to? Well, obviously, who gets the credit for rain? They thought it was Baal. No, it's Jehovah. It's the God of Israel. And just like she's giving the people credit for this victory, 
Now she's giving God the ultimate credit for this victory. She's reserving no credit for herself. She does say this, though, in verse 6 and 7. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, oh, now she's pointing to this other woman, the highways were unoccupied, and the travelers walked through byways. The inhabitants of the villages ceased. They ceased in Israel. Now, she adds one more detail I'll get to in just a moment, but what she's describing there is danger and social unrest and violence all around you. This is an unstable society. Because when she says the highways were unoccupied, well, why on earth would nobody be on the main roads? It was eerie to drive on the freeways during COVID when everything shut down. It was eerie. My grandpa actually went to the airport to buy a plane ticket. He, he didn't understand internet. Uh, he went to the, and so for him to go on a trip, you drive to the airport and you buy a plane ticket to go on a trip later on. Well, he happened to decide on a certain September day in, in 2001. It's been a while since I've traveled. I want to go on a trip. Uh, and so he drove to the Salt Lake Airport and was shocked that the highways were unoccupied. In fact, the whole airport seemed to be totally empty. He's like, this is a great... I should always remember days like this to come because there's no lines to wait in. What day is today? Oh, it's September 11th. 2001. I should remember this. Well, we all remember that day. And Grandpa hadn't tuned into any news programs to realize why the highways were unoccupied and why the travelers walked by byways instead, why the airports were all empty because the world had changed and there was danger seemingly everywhere. That's the world that Deborah is living in. It's the world that Jael is pitching her tent in. It's the world that Barak is scared to face and the Israelites are ready to retreat from. And to have these women of faith in God, to be able to move forward despite all of that, empty highways, there's reason for that. People are scared of being accosted along the way. Travelers walking by byways instead. I, I've got to stay off the main road for fear of what might happen to me there. This is, this is social chaos, which describes so much of the period of the judges. We'll see it repeated often. And it takes incredible faith to move forward in, in the face of that. But that's the faith of Deborah. It's the faith of Jael. And that's why I love the end of verse 7. In all of that, the inhabitants of the villages ceased. They ceased in Israel. But here's the, the answer. Until that I, Deborah, arose. That I arose a mother in Israel. Now, that's the first time she mentions herself here. So far, it's been, look what Barak did. Look what the people did. Look what Jael did. Look what God did. But in all of this, a mother arose. A mother in Israel. Now we have no evidence of Deborah having any children. There's no mention of that. Again, we don't know if she's the wife of Lapidoth or just a woman of brilliant fire. And so what do you mean by that, a mother in Israel? If there's no mention made of children, is she a mother to her people? Is she a mother to society? Seems like it. She's a prophetess. She's a judge. They come up to her to see what we've heard recently from 
incredible female leaders in the church. To have a mother's heart. Deborah had one. Or are we not all mothers? No matter what your marriage status might be, or your ability or inability to have biological children of your own. For you sisters that are struggling in those kinds of circumstances, look to Deborah. Oh, and she can encourage you as well. Because there arose a mother in Israel. And when God wants to change the world, what does he do? He calls a mother. He, he sends a baby to earth in the hands of someone that, well, not just someone, but people that will raise that child and raise them to make a difference. Keep that phrase in mind as you think of Deborah and as you think of J.L. and see them come together in just a moment. She, Deborah just mentioned J.L. Keep going though, verse 11. They that are delivered from the noise of archers in the places of drawing water. Now it's usually the women that would draw water. We've seen that in scripture already. Uh, these wells, however, are not safe because at these places of drying water, they're hearing the noise of archers. This is no safe time to go to get, get water from the well. But thanks to God, they're being delivered from those things. There shall they rehearse the righteous acts of the Lord, even the righteous acts toward the inhabitants of his villages in Israel. Then shall the people of the Lord go down to the gates. Ah, the gates. That's where judges usually sit. Oh, this is the palm tree of Deborah. And what will they say? Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, utter a song. Arise, Barak, lead thy captivity captive, thou son of Abinoam. Awake, Deborah? <laughs> She's not the one that needs to be woken up. But she'll do an amazing job of, of rallying the troops and awakening, slumbering Israel. That's her, her role as a judge. In verse 15, For the divisions of Reuben there were great thoughts of heart. Why abodest thou among the sheepfolds to hear the bleatings of the flocks? For the divisions of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Oh, the, the Reubenites were searching deep for courage and for faith and weren't sure if they found any. So I, I might as well just hide out here among the sheep. That's kind of what they were themselves. They were quivering lambs and Deborah was looking for roaring lions. So children of Reuben... Come, what are you doing? In verse 17, Gilead abode beyond Jordan. And why did Dan remain in ships? Asher continued on the seashore and abode in his breaches. Why so scared, everyone? Gilead, that's east of Jordan. That's Reuben, Gad, half of Manasseh. What, what are you doing hiding among the sheep? Dan, why are you remaining in your ships, ready to flee at a moment's notice? Asher, same with you, <laughs> huddled down by the seashore, abiding in your breaches. Why is everyone so scared? Everyone's so faithless. Zebulun and Naphtali, now there were a people that jeoparded their lives unto the death in the high places of the field. You see, Deborah is reminding them through this song. Some of you tribes were, were scared and wouldn't come. Others had courage and came running. And it would take someone like Deborah to unite the tribes to be able to deliver themselves from the enemy. In verse 23, she adds, Curse ye morose, said the angel of the Lord. Curse ye bitterly the inhabitants thereof, because they came not to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. 
Now, we don't know really anything about this story, but evidently, Moroz was some city in Israel that didn't come running when they should have, when they'd been called. And so there is a curse upon the people of Moroz because they would not come to the help of the Lord or to the help of their fellows in Israel. It's actually interesting, as, as obscure as that passage is to us, this goes to show how biblically literate people were in earlier centuries. During the American Revolutionary War, uh, colonists that were patriots called upon colonists that were loyalists. Uh, you've got to join the fight. We've declared our independence. Haven't you read Common Sense yet? Come on, we've got to rally the troops. And there were even patriot ministers calling their, their loyalist congregations to repentance. And guess what they would use? They'd use the song of Deborah. They would quote Judges chapter 5, verse 23, and say, Curse ye morose, because you wouldn't come to help. And, and, and that's all it took for some loyalists to be called out. Uh, it was like, did he just morose me? Really? I mean, they knew their scriptures well enough that just by dropping that hint, they would realize, I'm being called out for not coming to the assistance of, of my nation as it's trying to declare its independence from Canaanites, or in this case, the British. Interesting to see just how well people knew their scriptures back then. I think we've lost a step or two. Well, go back to the, the, to the song. In verse 24, Blessed above women shall Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, be. Blessed shall she be above women in the tent. And then she goes on to describe what Jael had done. And it puts it in, in pretty stark terms. 25, he asked water, and she gave him milk. She brought forth butter in a lordly dish. She put her hand to the nail and her right hand to the workman's hammer. And with the hammer, she smote Sisera. She smote off his head when she had pierced and stricken through his temples. Now, this is pretty graphic kinds of lyrics here. But it's interesting, even there's almost this humorous element that goes through it. This kind of na 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 na, hey hey, goodbye. I mean, it is. This is a song that that Israel is going to sing in the aftermath of of we won, and we were the underdogs. And so the way it's described, he asked water, she gave milk. There's just interesting. It would be interesting to hear it sung in the Hebrew, and kind of the, the back and forth. He asked water. She gave milk. She brought forth butter and a lordly dish. You see how she is setting him up? It's amazing the, the, the cunning of Jael here as it's being rejoiced over. One hand on the nail, the other hand on a workman's hammer. Workman? No, this is a workwoman. And the victory went into her hand. Verse 27, at her feet he bowed, he fell, he lay down. At her feet he bowed, he fell. Where he bowed, there he fell, down dead. Again, this is a, it sounds really repetitive, but this is a song. And picture just the, the repeat, repeat, echo, echo, kind of verse by verse as they're joining in the song. Then, again, this sounds really harsh, but this is war and war is hell. It then turns from a woman, Jael, to another woman, the mother of Sisera. And it even, oh, jabs at her loss. The mother of Sisera looked out at a window and cried through the lattice, why is his chariot so long in coming? 
Why tarry the wheels of his chariot? Her wise ladies answered her. Yea, she returned answer to herself. Have they not sped? Have they not divided the prey to every man a damsel or two? To Sisera a prey of diverse colors? A prey of diverse colors of needlework? Of diverse colors of needlework on both sides? Meet for the necks of them that take the spoil? Now this sounds like a very odd song. But if you are under the enemy boot or the enemy thumb for all these years and you finally have declared your independence and actually obtained it, oh, there's, there's a rejoicing. There's rubbing it in the enemy's face. I'm not saying we should do that by any means, but what ancient Israel is rejoicing over, and it's interesting the, the gendered nature of this particular song. The verses that we just read about, here's this woman, mother of Sisera, looking out the window. What's taking little Sisera so long? What's keeping my boy from coming home? Well, there have been a lot of Israelite mothers over the years weeping over the, the losses of their soldier sons as they unsuccessfully have battled for their own freedom. Well, now the roles have reversed. And the first is last, and the last is first, and the above is below, and the below is above, and this role reversal. And so who's mourning over the loss of their little boys now? And so grateful that a mother in Israel, Deborah and Jael, were able to overcome the mothers of Canaan, the mother of Sisera. Again, gendered language in terms of her wise ladies responding. And what do they say? Oh, it's just taking a little longer because, of course, your son was victorious. And he's probably just dividing the prey, dividing the spoil, picking up a damsel or two. There's gendered language there, too. That they're just out, your son's out there taking the spoils of war, including the wives and daughters of the people that they've slain in battle. It goes on with more gendered language when it talks about, Oh, this diverse color of needlework. In fact, needlework on both sides. That's even trickier. And again, this was considered woman's work in those days. So all this whole part of the song is gendered. What women have produced by way of children. And who's been slain? What women have produced by way of needlework. And what's, is it being taken? Even women in terms of not just agents raising children or, or sewing needlework, but objects in terms of, oh, just take a damsel or two for yourself. The, the gendered language of this song really is fascinating. And playing a role usually assigned to men. To see them as agents rather than objects. This is not... Oh, a damsel to be taken as a spoil of war. No, this is a, a warrior woman helping to lead the battle, Deborah, helping to defeat the enemy general, Jael. This is, oh, forget even the needlework. What is a needle? If you magnified it, oh, that needle now becomes a nail. Interesting play on words here. And to take... Mere, mere, quote-unquote, mere needlework? Oh, no. It's replace the needle with a nail and take up the workman's hammer. And it's a workwoman and working women that are defeating the enemies of Israel.
Notice, by the way, when I say working women, where are they working? Because Deborah is in the field and Jael is in the tent. To me, there's something incredibly powerful there. Because these two women, we could refer to them both as mothers in Israel, but we usually assume, no, Jael is more the mother type because she's there in the tent, in the home. Whereas Deborah doesn't seem to fit that mold. She's out under the palm tree. She's in the gates of, of the city. She's judging. She's a prophetess. She's basically commander-in-chief because even, even Barak won't go out without her. And to me, what I love about this, especially when I get to teach women in the scriptures classes, is there's not one size fits all. How are we supposed to fight this war? And how are we going to win the battle? Because you see in Deborah and Jael, side by side, same war, same purpose, same goal, but two different ways to be able to pursue it. And this will have to be up to you, sisters, and your, and your good families, and, and a lot of judgment, which is Deborah's gift, a lot of wise judgment on your own part. There are times and seasons in life, I love what President Faust used to say, that yes, you can do it all. You just can't do it all at the same time. And there will be times and seasons where we need to be JLs in the tent, and times and seasons where we will be Deborahs out in the field. This is true of men as well as women, as soon as we understand that the most important work we do is within the walls of our own home. Thank you, Harold B. Lee. As soon as we realize that no other outside success can compensate for failure in the home. Thank you, David O. McKay. That applies to men as well as women. But since location so often throughout history has been gendered, can we take this as an opportunity to ponder and pray and judge wisely? Heavenly Father, where would you have me serve at this stage of my life? Not just life stages, but in this moment, am I needed in the tent or in the battlefield? And wherever you need me, I will go. Elder Quentin L. Cook gave an amazing talk years ago in conference about women and said that LDS women are incredible. That was the name of his talk. And the two things that struck me best from that was on the one hand, do the very best you can. And on the other hand, assume that everyone else is also. Too often we judge each other and there is pride from above fighting against pride from below and even fighting over who's above and who's below. And people, women in the workforce looking down on women that are just mothers at home. Uh, and all, but also, flip it around, women at home looking down at women that find themselves in the workforce. And I'm so grateful for Elder Cook's counsel. Can we stop judging each other? Can we just do the best we can wherever we happen to be and give one another the benefit of the doubt that they're doing the best that they can too? And as they're wrestling with difficult decisions about battlefield versus tent, just trust that you are fighting the same battle under the direction of the same king, captain of captains and king of kings. I hope I'm making sense here. But to me, there's something worth wrestling with over the positions and locations and contributions 
of two women that have equal claim upon the title mother in Israel. And however you're mothering, and whoever you're mothering, oh, if you will turn to the father of us all, you'll be guided to know what you should do and where you should do it. I have a testimony of that. That round of the pride cycle is one of my favorites. Uh, they've ended on a good note. The question is, how long will it last? Well, we see at the end of chapter 5, it lasted 40 years. 40 years of rest. And then chapter 6 begins, and the children did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. Now a new round, a new enemy, who will be our new judge. Verse 3, so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up, and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them, and they encamped against them, and destroyed the increase of the earth, till thou come unto Gaza, and left no sustenance for Israel. Now if you take that verse literally, which you should do first, these are enemies that are interfering with the harvest. Okay? Israel had gone out to sow. They'd planted their crops. But these enemies come up against them and destroy the increase of the earth. So you've planted, but you'll never get to harvest. And that's thus, as it says at the end there, no sustenance was left for Israel. Now that's the literal take. If you take more of a symbolic one, I think there's something powerful about seeing the pride cycle in terms of the law of the harvest. Israel, what have you planted through your righteousness or your wickedness? And what you sowed, so shall you reap. So will there be sustenance for you when all is said and done? We're going to see. In verse 5, they, the Amalekites in this case, came up with their cattle and their tents, and they came as grasshoppers for multitude. For both they and their camels were without number, and they entered into the land to destroy it. Here we have an innumerable enemy. There is no hope, at least against the Canaanites and their horribly difficult chariots of iron. At least we could number them. 900 was a big number, but you could at least count that high. These ones? Uh-uh. I can't even count their camels. It's like grasshoppers infesting the land. There's no way we'll be able to stand up against them. If you thought Barak had reason to be concerned in the last round, well, here we'll meet Gideon, our next judge. He has all the reasons in the world to be concerned. Well, let's meet him in verse 11. And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was in Ophrah, that pertained unto Joash the Abiezrite. And his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Now, in those verses that introduce us to Gideon, there's all kinds of wonderful symbolism there. It's under an oak. Oh, there's, there's some hard wood, symbol of strength and stability. Gideon is out threshing wheat, so here's someone that's accustomed to separating wheat from tares or separating wheat from chaff. Here's someone, hopefully, that can gather out good grain, despite whatever else might be around it. He's threshing wheat by the wine press. Ah, he's, he's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. Oh, a wine press, treading it. Uh, we're getting some Christ symbolism here. And God can be with you. The Lord is with thee. 
He must be worthy. He must be righteous. He must be humble. He must be on the right side of the pride cycle uh, because God is with him. But then when he's called thou mighty man of valor, that's where we might be getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> because as you watch the story unfold, that's where Gideon would say, I, I think you got the wrong guy. Uh, yes, I can thresh wheat. And yes, I know the wine press. I sure hope God is with me. But I'm no mighty man of valor. Uh, that courage is, is hard to come by for him. We'll see that as what the story unfolds. Verse 13, Gideon says to him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Notice what he said there. If the Lord be with us, then why are we in these circumstances? Do you remember Rebecca when she's finally pregnant? A barren woman, no longer barren. But her pregnancy is so hard that she asks God, if it be so, why am I thus? If you're really with us, then why is this so hard? And that's what Gideon's getting at. I, is God with us? Well, that's where God could reverse things and ask the question to, of him. The real question is, are you with me? I'm willing to be with you anytime you're willing to be with me, to have me as your God. I'll have you as my people. The, the, this idea of the Lord hath forsaken us, no. You have forsaken me repeatedly. But if you'll turn to me, I'm, I'm ready to rush back to you. This is father of the prodigal son, right? As soon as you come back, I'm, I'll come running. And will you come to me? Will you be worthy of the kinds of miracles I performed for your forefathers all along the way? In verse 14, the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might. To which Gideon probably would think, My might? What are you talking about? Thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? Uh, we know that phrase from President Monson, right? Whom the Lord calls, the Lord qualifies. If I'm the one calling that I'm the one qualifying. I've sent you, so go. We can do this. Go in your might. I don't have any might. I know, but I do. And I will be your might. Verse 15, he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? How am I going to do this? Behold, my father is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Do you get the same sense of inadequacy that we saw in Enoch? I'm just a lad, all the people hate me, that we saw in Moses. I'm slow of speech and a slow tongue. Oh, I love the weak. I mean, compared to me, that's all I've got. But I love the weak who recognize their weakness because that's humility. And what's the great antidote to the pride cycle? Humility is. Because then you'll trust in me instead of trusting in the arm of flesh. I'm glad that you look at your arm and don't see much flesh there. That's good. You'll look to other arms then, to mine. So don't worry that you're from the tribe of Manasseh when Ephraim was higher than Manasseh was. Oh, you're all Josephites, it's okay. Don't worry that you're least in your father's house. Don't worry that your father is poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit if they'll come unto me. If you'll come in your weakness, I will turn weak things into strengths for you. And that's what I'll try to do here. Verse 16, here's the Lord's reassurance. He says to him, Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. It's not about you. 
It's about me. Just like it was with Enoch and just like it was with Moses. Verse 17, he said unto him, this is Gideon speaking now, If now I have found grace in thy sight, that enabling power, God as an help meet, then, and he's probably <laughs> nervous when he asks it, then show me a sign that thou talkest with me. In other words, is this really from God? Or are you just, oh, some mortal messenger trying to pump me up in hopes that I'll free Israel from the Amalekites when, because you're too scared to do it yourself. How do I know this is a message from the Lord? And not just some thought that's popping in my head. Oh, maybe I should be the next guy. No, who am I kidding? I can't do this. How can I know that it's you? Well, Gideon ends up saying to this messenger, stay here for a second. He goes back and he makes a meal and presents it to this messenger. That sounds a little like Abraham with these holy messengers that come to visit him. Some interesting echoes here. And what ends up happening, verse 21, the angel of the Lord put forth the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the flesh, the, the meat that he'd been given, and the unleavened cakes, and there rose up fire out of the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. Then the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Well, now Gideon knows. How do I know that you're a messenger from a true messenger from God rather than just a mere mortal among, among men? Well, bring me some dinner and I'll show you something. And there's the staff and whew, you thought you cooked it? Well, how about fire from the rock? And then the angel disappears. And now Gideon is left to himself with the realization, an angel was just with me which means God indeed will be with me, come what may. In verse 24, Gideon built an altar there unto the Lord and called it Jehovah Shalom. Unto this day, it is yet in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. Jehovah Shalom, Shalom means peace. And so here's a man being called to war, but reassuring himself that God is a God of peace and he will provide peace to me and to our people if I will just trust him and go into battle. In verse 25, it came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto him, Take thy father's young bullock, even the second bullock of seven years old, and throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath, and cut down the grove that is by it, and build an altar unto the Lord thy God upon the top of this rock in the ordered place. Take the second bullock and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove which thou shalt cut down. That's amazing what's happening there. Gideon had just built an altar. In some ways, the angel provided one. Here's an offering, a sacrifice, and then fire comes out of the rock. He makes his own miraculous altar and turns what Gideon had provided into a true sacrificial offering. I'll take the loaves and fishes that you've presented and multiply them to feed a multitude. I'll take what you thought was mere dinner of hospitality for an uninvited guest into a true burnt offering given to God himself. Well, if I turned your rock into an altar, now go and actually do one yourself. But in the midst of all of this, you build your altar and meanwhile throw down your father's altar because yours is to Jehovah, Jehovah Shalom. His is to Baal. It's interesting that Gideon was raised by an idolater. Here's someone that's you know, lost some of his, 
his faith or his hope or his understanding. I mean, in some ways, maybe that's why Gideon's so nervous about all of this. Who am I? A poor in Israel? Maybe dad, or poor in Manasseh? Maybe it's not so much that dad is physically poor, but spiritually he sure seems to be. Why would you choose me? Well, because you're cho- still choosing Jehovah, even w- when you're raised by a guy who isn't. And so if you're going to throw down idolatry in Israel, why don't you start right here at home? Go to your father's altar and throw down his. Cut down the grove. You see, remember Baal and Ashtaroth, Asherah? These false gods and false trees of life. So take dad's rock and take dad's wood and, and change things, sanctify things. Cut down the false trees of life and burn them on a false altar that will now be made true. Do that. Okay, here goes nothing. Dad's not going to like this. This is, I just mentioned the prodigal son. In this case, it's a prodigal father. And a son that's going to have to face his father in terms of trying to overthrow the, the idolatry that's entered in. In verse 27, then Gideon took ten men of his servants, so I'm scared to do it by myself, and did as the Lord had said unto him. But notice this. And so it was, because he feared his father's household and the men of the city, that he could not do it by day, that he did it by night. So, can you send? I mean, we saw Barak and his fear. I'm not going unless Deborah comes with me. Now we see Gideon's fear. Uh, I need at least ten other guys to back me up. And I'm not doing it during the daytime where everybody has eyes to see. I'm going to like commando mission. Is that okay? And sneak over across enemy lines back to dad's altar. And we're going to chop down the wood as quietly as we can. (laughs) We're going to tear down his altar uh, reverently in hopes that we don't get caught in the act. And so they do. It's interesting. We live in a day that it's, we are surrounded by idolatry and iniquity. And there are so many people, especially on social media, that are quick to jump on, on you if you ever stand up for what is right. It's tough to do it visibly. We sometimes want to sneak in under cover of darkness or anonymity and just make a comment and then hope that we can sneak back away and not get crucified on social media. Uh, we, we have to be wise, but yes, we need to be courageous as well. What happens here, well, then they do it under cover of darkness, but the sun eventually comes up and they see what happened. The altar of Baal has been destroyed. The grove of Asherah has been cut down. What's going on? And they find out that it was Gideon. So they go to Gideon's father and say, send out your son so we can kill him. Yikes, no wonder Gideon was afraid. But dad has just enough either family loyalty or maybe still... Uh, Oh, a testimony beneath his years of idolatry. To respond in verse 31, Will ye plead for Baal? Will ye save him? He that will plead for him, let him be put to death whilst it is yet morning. If he be a god, let him plead for himself, because one hath cast down his altar. Dad's got a little courage here. And I love kind of the smack talk he does, throwing it back into the face of those that want to kill his son over this. It's like, oh, if you're so offended... For Baal, let's let Baal be offended for himself, shall we? If you're here to avenge what's happened, if you really have faith in Baal, let Baal avenge himself. Let's see if he does anything. Meanwhile, the Midianites and the Amalekites gather together against Israel, right? Innumerable camels like, the, like grasshoppers uh, swarming across the earth. 
But verse 34, the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet. So he's starting to gather warriors from throughout Israel. Verse 36, Gideon said unto God, If thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said. So he's still struggling with doubt there. That's a big if. Behold, I will put a fleece of wool in the floor, and if the dew be on the fleece only, and it be dry upon all the earth beside, then shall I know that thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said. Now, my heart goes out to Gideon, and I don't want to, to malign him or misjudge him. He's afraid, and he has every reason to be, okay? Innumerable enemy. Who am I? I can't do this. But God said he'd be with me. I wasn't sure, and I, in my fear, in my doubt, I asked him for reassurance, and he gave me that. He turned that rock into an altar, and he, he turned my meager meal into a burnt sacrifice acceptable to God himself. Okay, that was reassuring. But now we're getting closer to the battle, and I'm starting to freak out again. This is a Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief kind of moment for Gideon. I'm still scared. Uh, I know the call came from you, but will the victory? I'm putting my life on the line here. I did last night. I'm doing it again into, into battle. Um, I'm going to need more than 10 men as backup. And, and I don't know if I can do this under cover of darkness. I need your light to shine and to, to pierce my own darkness and my own doubt. I need divine reassurance. So please, God, if you're going to be with me, will you please help me see that once again? Wilt thou help mine unbelief? And so the if here, it's a fascinating one. I actually love this scene. He says, I'm going to put down a fleece, so some wool from sheep that I've recently sheared. I'm going to put it down on the ground outside my, my home. And in the morning, when the dew usually comes up and, and covers all of the land around with this little blanket of moisture, kind of like the manna from heaven, the rising there with the dew, I need some manna in the morning. But to make sure it's not just natural, because well, it's due pretty much every morning. The grass is wet. Well, I'm going to lay out this fleece. And in this case, if the fleece is wet, that only dew collected there, whereas all the grass around it is dry, that's impossible. Which means if it happened, it happened by miracle. It happened by the power of God. If I'm going to beat the, the, the Amalekites and the Midianites, it's going to be by a miracle too. So will you, will you reassure me of that miracle by providing me with this mini miracle? And amazingly, God in the multitude of his mercies does just that. Verse 38, it was so. For he rose up early on the morrow and thrust the fleece together and wringed the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. <laughs> I love that. Just picture him getting up in the morning, kind of gingerly tiptoeing out, wondering what he'll see. And as he walks out, his feet remain dry, step by step by step. There's no dew on the grass. Well, maybe it was just a, a dry night. But when he gets to the fleece and picks it up, with hands drenched the moment he touches it, 
picks it up and wrings it out, and the water just starts to pour down. There's, there's reassurance for you. And yet, poor Gideon, still overwhelmed by the task ahead and so overwhelmed by his own doubts. Lord, I believe a little more now, but help thou still my remaining unbelief. He says, just in case, that was some really strange coincidence. Can you do it again and reverse it? Just, I'm so sorry I'm even asking, but I just, I've got to know that you'll be with me. He says in verse 39, let not thine anger be hot against me. And I will speak but this once. This is the last thing I need. Let me prove, I pray thee, but this once with the fleece. Let it now be dry only upon the fleece. And upon all the ground, let there be dew. That way I'll know it wasn't just a weird thing last night. And sure enough, verse 40, God did so that night, for it was dry upon the fleece only, and there was dew on all the ground. Can you picture that one? Waking up, again hesitant, but hopeful, tiptoeing out of his tent, and feet wet the moment he steps outside it. Wetter and wetter as he approaches the fleece, and wondering, will it be a, a splash again as I wring it out? But no, picks it up. And you can picture him like hitting it and a dust cloud comes out. I'm no artist. Over the years, some of my students have taken pity on me for that and given me some incredible artwork. Some I've already shared with you and some I'll share later on. But there's a part of me that wishes that one of the great painters out there would try to depict this scene. I think of the two, I would pick the first one. And in my mind's eye, I picture Gideon kneeling down in the dust. I don't know how you convey to make it look as dry as you possibly can. Maybe kind of like one of those dry lake beds where the mud is so dried out that it's kind of cr uh, cracked and rounded in the corners. Just this is as bone dry as you can get. But then to picture a Gideon kneeling in the dust. And in his hands, this twisted fleece, as water is pouring down onto his lap, mingled with water pouring down his face, namely tears of gratitude. Tears of, of reassured faith that God will be with me. And he's providing living water as evidence of that fact. I do wish there were better depictions of this scene. Because to me, that's what faith looks like. And doubt what it looks like too. And the two, as, as the, the line in the middle of our heart starts to shift and the center of gravity moves from doubt to faith. As we say with that distraught father, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. There is something powerful here in this scene. Chapter 6 turns to 7 then, and it's go time. Are you ready? I've reassured you three different times. Let's do this. Gideon gathers his army to go out against the Midianites. It's a massive force, but nothing. But the fact it can be numbered <laughs> means I'm outnumbered because the enemy, I can't count that high at all. Verse 2, the Lord says to Gideon, 
the people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. And you picture poor Gideon going, what? I've been beating the bushes trying to get as many troops as I possibly can. I, I know, you, you got a little too, too many. And here's why. Lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, mine own hand hath saved me. You see, let's get back to that trusting in the arm of flesh. One of the reasons I picked you, Gideon, is because the, you know you don't have much flesh in your arm. But what did you do? You went seeking as much flesh as you possibly could find. And you gathered an, an army, we'll see later, that it's like 30,000 troops. And God says, oh, that's way too many. Huh? Yeah, I'm still thinking it's way too few. Well, from your perspective, I can see why you'd say that. But from mine, I'm worried that you'll vaunt yourself. I'm worried that Israel will see all this flesh on their arm, become victorious in the battle, and think, yep, we had the biceps to do it. Uh, we had the strength to be able to do this. And so what's God going to do? Sorry, I'm, I mean, you put all this flesh on your arm, all those curls that you've been doing overnight. Uh, I'm going to have to whittle that away. Sorry. I need you to have less trust in self so that you can have more trust in me. I've said this to you before. This is advice I gave my son that thankfully has stuck with him. That life has to be just hard enough to prove to us that we didn't do it on our own. We needed to come to know God in our extremities. And so sometimes we're pushed to extremes ourselves. This is Lehi and his family in the wilderness journeys toward the promised land when they're told, you're not allowed to make fire. What? How are we going to eat? Well, someone with a lot of faith is going to have to bless the food, okay? Uh, to nourish and strengthen their bodies, or better yet, so that I don't get killed from undercooked meat, or in this case, uncooked. Yikes. Well, what does he say in 1 Nephi 17? It has to be this hard so that you will know that it is by me that ye are led. I'll provide your light in the wilderness. I'll cook your food for you in ways that you can't cook it for yourself. There's something powerful here about God saying, yeah, that's too much. It's even things like, oh, you could make your ends meet with 100% of your funds? Then give me 10% please. But then I won't have enough. Exactly. Uh, I need you to trust me more than just trusting your bank account. I need you to trust the arm of God instead of the arm of flesh. So let's whittle away your army. Verse 3, Therefore go to, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. Remember that earlier verse back, I think it was Deuteronomy, where he said, anybody, when you're marshalling the troops, make sure you don't accept any, any fearful enlistments, because that fear will just spread throughout the army and ruin things. So don't bring them along. Well, in a way, that's all God is asking here. Do what I've already told you and let the, the fearful go home. Of course, there I picture Gideon going, uh, thanks, because now, now I'm leaving. <laughs> I picture a guy going, no, 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 that doesn't apply to you, Gideon. I know you've been scared all along the way. But three rounds of reassurance, it's meant to be enough, so no, you have to stay. Well, there returned of the people 20 and 2,000, and there remained 10,000. So now let's do our math. That means his original army was 32,000 strong. Still nothing compared to the army of the Midianites and Amalekites. But way too much for God. And so if you're scared, go home. And with that one statement, he just lost over two-thirds of his army. 
Huh? All I have left are 10,000? This is unbelievable. This is fear so far outweighing faith among the camp of Israel. We're back to Joshua and Caleb at the, at the banks of the Jordan River. Well, let's stick with the ones that are faithful then. Okay? The fearful aren't going to help much in the battle anyway. So let them go home. Except you, Gideon. Stick around. Then verse 4, the Lord said unto Gideon, The people are yet too many. What? Are you, I'm down to 10,000 troops. I know. Way too much. So bring them down unto the water, and I will try them for thee there. And it shall be that of whom I say unto thee, This shall go with thee, the same shall go with thee. And of whomsoever I say unto thee, This shall not go with thee, the same shall not go. So first round of whittling down the arm of flesh was just send the fearful away. Well, you're still 10,000 actually have faith. That's pretty awesome. That's really good. Um, but I don't want that faith to become faith in self. I want it to remain faith in God. So uh, take them down to the river, and I'm going to do something a little odd here. I'm just going to try to divide them into two groups. Uh, and the specific test maybe doesn't matter, but it'll give you a chance to see the ones I want to keep and the ones I want to send home. So here's how it's going to work. Go down to the river and let them all drink. Now, what, we're going to watch how they drink, because some are going to kind of get down on their hands and knees or on their chest and just stick their head in the water and just start drinking it straight out of the stream. Others are going to, I mean, maybe get down on one knee or just kind of bend over and scoop some up in their hand and then hold their hand to their mouth and kind of lap it up like a dog. Now, what ends up happening is of the 10,000 troops remaining, 9,700 end up drinking straight out of the stream. And only 300 bend over and scoop up some and, and drink it out of their hand. Now, I can picture Gideon going, oh, okay, 9,700, 300. Well, let's get rid of the 300. I, I'm sorry that 10,000 was too many. But 9,700, I, I think that's a good force to work with. And God, you can picture him smiling going, uh, no, but you're close. Um, yes, we're going to send one group home. You just picked the wrong one. Send the 9,700 home. And let's stick with 300. And here I picture Gideon like, are you kidding me? We're now down to less than 1% of what I started with. I had over 30,000 and now I'm down to 300. Are you kidding? Well, this is the 1% better. It's better than nothing. <laughs> it's better than you alone, Gideon. But that's all I need. All I need is 1% of what you brought me. In verse 7, the Lord says to Gideon, By the 300 men that lapped will I save you, and deliver the Midianites into thine hand, and let all the other people go, every man unto his place. Now on the one hand, like I just said, it doesn't matter what the test was. I'm just trying to separate people out, and I had a big group and a small group, and I'm, I was going to go with the small group either way. But I also wonder if there is something more literal about the specific test that he provided for them. Because if you're going into battle and you get thirsty, you start thinking of your own needs and you need to go meet them. And so you completely lie down or get on hands and knees and stick your head in the water. You are completely exposed to an attacking enemy. You are not in any way prepared to fight back. You can't even see anybody coming. Whereas if someone just kind of looks around 
leans over and scoops up some and is able to just bring the, the cupped hand to the mouth, then the head's still up. I'm lapping this, but I'm also looking around. I wonder if that's part of it too, that these 300, oh, they're worth holding on to. These are well-prepared troops. These are ones that are thinking ahead and not thinking of just meeting their own needs, but also always being at the ready anytime an enemy comes. Let's stick with them. In verse 9, it came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto Gideon, Arise, get thee down unto the host, for I have delivered it into thine hand. There's past tense. You've already won. The battle hasn't even started. But if thou fear to go down, go thou with Fura thy servant down to the host. What the Lord's asking Gideon to do here is go scope it out. Go com command omission, belly crawl, kind of Tiancum-like, and sneak across enemy lines just to kind of see what's going on. If you're afraid, yeah, bring somebody with you. Okay? Not ten men like you did when you tore down your father's altar, but bring one, your servant. Verse 11, thou shalt hear what they say, and afterward shall thine hands be strengthened to go down unto the host. So if only you knew what the enemy was thinking, you wouldn't be so scared yourself. So sneak into eavesdrop. Listen to what they're saying the night before the big battle. Then went he down with Fura his servant unto the outside of the armed men that were in the host. <laughs> Did you catch that? He said, the Lord said, go down and listen. Uh, eavesdrop. If you're scared, bring Fura. And then the next verse, Gideon goes and he brings Fura with him. So what does that let us know? <laughs> yeah, that Gideon was still scared to death. He hasn't changed, but at, le at least not entirely. He has the faith to follow God, but I could still use a little backup, please. And the Lord knows that. So bring some backup and go get yet another round of reassurance. The, last, the first one was from my messenger. The second and third were directly from me. The fourth one, it's actually going to come from the enemy. Because I'm going to give you a chance to feel what they're feeling and hear what they're thinking. Verse 12, the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the children of the east lay along in the valley like grasshoppers for multitude. There it is again. Their camels were without number as the sand by the seaside for multitude. Sands by the sea? Wait, I thought that was supposed to be Abrahamic covenant. Oh, it will be if you'll just exercise faith. But that's what you're up against. So will you have the faith to conquer your fear? Verse 13, when Gideon was come, behold, there was a man that told a dream unto his fellow. So now's his chance to eavesdrop and overhear the enemy. And this is kind of like sneaking into the locker room of the other team before the game begins. I mean, we're the underdogs, so we're the ones that are supposed to be scared to death. I'll bet over there on that side, they don't even need a pump-up speech. Uh, they, they just, they, they know they've got this game in hand. Well, this is what this man says about his dream. He said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and lo, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the host of Midian and came unto a tent and smote it that it fell and overturned it that the tent lay along. Now, that sounds like a strange dream. Now, barley is like poor man's grain. Wheat is what the upper classes would eat. Uh, but just barley, yeah, that's all it is, just this barley cake. But it's like rolling down the, the hill. It's almost like a, like a stone cut out of the mountain without hands. Huh. Wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. Anyway, just this cheap bread starts rolling down. And if there's anything that would just I don't know, bump up against a 
a tent pole and crumble or just bounce off and, and rot. No, this one, just this mere barley cake rolled into our camp, our, this mighty camp of the Midianites and the Amalekites. And what happened? It bumped up against the tent pole and the whole thing collapsed. I mean, forget lengthening your cords and strengthening your stakes. We've got nothing really holding this thing up. We have no nails in a sure place. We have no tent spikes. We've got no protection. We have no refuge, no covering for our nakedness. Our tent came crashing down, kind of like the walls of Jericho, all because a barley cake rolled in. And, and this dreamer is scared to death of what this omen might suggest. The person he shares it with is starting to be scared of this. You picture that, but news of this begin to spread throughout the camp until everyone is really worried about the game that's about to begin, the, the battle that's about to unfold. Well, everyone except Gideon and Fura, that is. Because as they listen in and hear this, it's like, wait, that's how they feel about this? And, and I'm the barley cake, I know that much. I'm no, I'm no wheat. But even little old me can come tumbling down and I'm not the one that's going to crumble? Wow, God really will be with me. Verse 14, his fellow, the dreamer's conversation partner, he answered and said, This is nothing else save the sword of Gideon, the, sword, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. For into his hand hath God delivered Midian and all the host. And again, that's all Gideon needs to hear. In case he wasn't interpreting the dream clearly enough himself, God made sure that his enemy interpreted it for him. That bread is the sword of Gideon. And we're dead. Now, again, think about this in terms of what we're up against. And so often we are intimidated by whatever's out there. And I can't possibly stand up for my standards because I'm going to get destroyed. Or how about this one? I can't possibly share the gospel with someone because they're going to be offended or they're going to reject it and me and it's going to ruin our relationship. Or I couldn't possibly go on a mission uh, as a young or as a senior missionary. I, I can't accept that calling. There's just so many things that, I'm, that I, are unknown and intimidating. Well, imagine if you could get into the mind and heart of, what, of whoever you're scared of. And if you could see that they're probably more scared of you than you are of them. Or they're more open to what you have to offer than, than what you might imagine? I don't know. There's something here that I'm still wrapping my head around. I just love the thought of don't automatically assume that what's going on in their head is what's been going on in yours. It might not be that way. It certainly wasn't that way for Gideon and the people that he so feared. And if you only knew what they were thinking you'd probably have more courage to stand up for truth or to share the gospel or to resist temptation or to just stand and be counted among the armies of Israel. Well, what happens next? Verse 15. And it was so when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and the interpretation thereof that he worshipped. So grateful, so relieved. 
This is reassurance round number four, right? He returned unto the host of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord hath delivered into your hands the host of Midian. It's all the confidence he needed. And now he runs back to his tiny little army of 300 men, ready to rally the troops and send them forth. So this is what he does. He takes his army, 300, and splits them up into three groups of 100 each. He then gives each man a trumpet to hold in one hand and a clay pot, some kind of pitcher, to hold in the other. And inside that pot is going to be a torch on fire. Now, if I've got one hand with a trumpet and the other hand holding a, a pot with a torch in it, then what hand do I use for my sword? Oh, good question. I guess no sword's needed. Or at least you're not going to need to get to them anytime quickly. Okay? So it's really interesting that they're marching into battle with their hands full and not with weapons. He then gives them the strangest strategy you can imagine. Well, perhaps no stranger than marching around Jericho, blowing trumpets and yelling together. But in this case, 100 troops on, like, let's triangulate, okay? And pick a side and we'll surround the enemy forces up on the hills around, surrounding this valley. It's going to be the middle of the night. And what's going to happen is you're going to go out there and on my signal, do what I do. We're going to, with the one hand, hold the trumpet and blow that trumpet with all your might. Because that will make the enemy feel like the war is right upon them. And that, the, 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 that our enemies are gathering all around them and the sounds of war are beginning to sound in their ears. Then, the other, the other hand, break the, the, the clay pot. Okay, just shatter that, that pitcher. And imagine again the sound where it sounds like, you know, the, the enemies, uh, the armies are approaching and they're just running down the hillsides and you can just hear the sound of shattered pottery and uh, the clash of arms. I mean, in the darkness, what's that going to sound like? It, it can be, be anything, especially if the night before people are, the rumors are already spreading that the sword of Gideon is about to come tumbling down the mountain and knock down every Midianite tent. So we, we have the sound of trumpet rally the forces. We have the sound of shattering pottery. And then, all of a sudden, 300 flames appear. And all it is is a little torch that's been hiding in a little clay pot. But in the confusion and in the, the fog of war, not being able to judge distances in the, in the darkness, it's going to look like all of a sudden 300 campfires have appeared off on the horizon in the surrounding mountains. Around each campfire, you can only imagine, there are probably troops, scores of men that are sounding the trumpet and, and clashing arms and beginning to roll down upon us. There's 300 armies up there. Not just... 300 men with no sword in hand, just blowing the trumpet and hitting a pot and holding the torch and crossing fingers and hoping that this actually works. And it totally did. I absolutely love this round of deliverance because it's so miraculous. It's so glorious. And sure enough, the, the battle is won before it even begins. They, they haven't unsheathed the sword. And yet in the confusion and chaos of it all, the Midianites and Amalekites begin falling upon themselves, falling upon each other. I mean, they're freaked out. One thing I didn't add, the armies, the 300 men, 
begin shouting, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Such a great phrase, because that's going to play upon the fears of the enemy from the night before. Remember the interpreter of this dream said, that's nothing but the sword of Gideon. And thankfully, the army of Israel knew it was a lot more than that. That's why they added not just the sword of Gideon, but the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. God is the one that's going to win this battle. And that's exactly what happens. In verse 21, they, Gideon's soldiers, stood every man in his place round about the camp. Just stand, stand still and see the salvation of God. That's what's happening. And all the host ran and cried and fled. And the 300 blew the trumpets. And the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow, even throughout all the host. And the host fled with the Israelite armies pursuing them. God won this battle because the enemy ended up destroying themselves. And Israel was just looking on in, I would say, in disbelief. But it was in belief because they finally had the faith to trust that God could do this. And he totally did. This is one of my favorite stories in all the book of Judges. And in all the Old Testament, to be honest. I love it. And one other thing just to add by way of just insight. What was it that won the battle? Beside all of their faith in the Lord and his sword, more than their own, they sounded the trumpet. That wets watchmen on the tower, right? They raised their voices loud and clear in faith, in testimony, in trust of God. And what else did they do? They let their lights so shine. Whatever it was that was obscuring that, they destroyed so that they, their lights could shine before men so that they could glorify their Father which is in heaven. I think there's something incredibly powerful. Whatever battles you're facing and whatever fear you're trying to conquer, oh, if you can heed the, the Lord's calls, if you can hear the sounding trumpet and, and come running, if you can break the clay and let your light shine, there's nothing that can keep you from victory. Well, as the victory unfolds, Judges chapter 8, the aftermath of this, it's interesting because of what happens and how the rest of Israel reacts to Gideon. Gideon didn't ask for, for leadership here. Uh, but other people, again, pride cycle happens quickly. There's some pride factoring in from others going, wait a minute, he's the one that won this? Well, what about us? Why didn't he call us to help? We could have conquered the enemy. Uh, careful. Are you trusting too much in the arm of flesh? So this is uh, Judges chapter 8. As soon as 7 ends and victory is totally in hand, Gideon calls for the men of Ephraim to come help finish everything off. Okay, birthright tribe, lots of, of soldiers, they can come and help end everything. But as chapter 8 begins, the Ephraimites are angry. That's ironic. They're not grateful for Gideon. They're mad at him, and they say, why didn't you call us sooner? I think they're a little worried. Are you trying to usurp power over us? I mean, you're a mere Manassehite, and not even from a very lofty family. Uh, why didn't you get us to lead the way? Verse 2, he said unto them, What have I done now in comparison of you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer, his own family? God hath delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison of you? Then their anger was abated toward him when he had said that. 
Interesting moment here. It totally diffuses the situation. And what was it that did it? The pride of the Ephraimites was on the rise. And so how did Gideon respond to their pride with his own humility? They're comparing. And we're stronger than you. And why wouldn't you choose us? And Gideon actually, ironically, leans into that comparison. But instead of trying to force it back upon them, he agrees with them. That's humility. That is total lack of pride from below, which helps diffuse the pride from above. It's really hard to be prideful in the presence of total humility. It's an amazing thing to see. And as Gideon just says, hey, in comparison to you, I'm nothing. The, the gleanings of your grapes are more than anything I could produce in my poor family in Manasseh. I was just trying to help and do my little part, and, and little is all it was. I could really use your help to finish things. Uh, I, I, all hands on deck. Can you please? I, I can't do it without you. And picture how the Ephraimites might feel after that. Oh, well, of course. I agree with you there. Okay, so yeah, no, no harm done. So the, with Ephraim in hand, the Gideon keeps chasing the retreating Midianites. Uh, meanwhile, he asks the men of Sukkot, uh, another city there, for food. And notice how he asks for it. This is in verse 5. Give, I pray you, loaves of bread unto the people that follow me, for they be faint, and I am pursuing after Ziba and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. I love how he said it. It's, will you provide for them, the armies that are in hot pursuit, right behind, I'm leading them. I'm sure he's just as hungry as everyone else. He was <laughs> uh, symbolized as a barley cake, but he didn't seem to have any of his own to actually eat. And so here, can you please provide for my army? I'm not even asking for anything for myself, but they are faint. I'm sure he is too. They are hungry. I'm sure he is too. Will you please provide for them? Especially considering the fact that we are fighting your battle for you, men of Sukkot. We're trying to drive out the enemy so we can all be free. But tragically, and here's some pride factoring back in, verse 6, the princes of Sukkot said, well, Are the hands of Ziba or Zalmunna now in thine hand, that we should give bread unto thine army? I wonder if they're, what they're saying there is, well, wait, wait, are they already in hand? Have you already beaten them? Because everybody wants to back a winner, but have you actually won? I wonder if this is part of that curse of morose, like, no, I'm not going to join in the battle until my presence is no longer needed in the battle. Well, that defeats the purpose. And among these men of Sukkot, same thing. I'm not going to help unless I know I stand to gain in all of this. No, no risk. Well, there's no reward then. Verse 7, Gideon said, Therefore, when the Lord hath delivered Ziba and Zalmunna into mine hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Oh yeah, Gideon's ticked. This is like Captain Moroni just lashing out against, against Pahoran, uh, thinking you're not helping me when you totally could. Well, in this case, in that case, Captain Moroni was wrong. And he and Pahoran handled it beautifully through a lack of pride on, on Pahoran's part. But in this case, Gideon was right. And the people of Sukkot did pay the price for their inaction. Gideon defeats the rest of the Midianites. He returns to those who refused to help him and punishes them. And then verse 22, the men of Israel say to Gideon, Rule thou over us, both thou and thy son and thy son's son also, for thou hast delivered us from the hand of Midian. 
Now, I can imagine that would be tempting for someone from a poor family in Manasseh, someone who never felt like he was good enough to do anything. But thankfully, it didn't turn, his victory didn't turn to pride for him. I mean, we're like poised and ready at the cusp of the pride cycle to just come crashing back down. And Gideon, bless his soul. No, I'm not interested in kingship. I'm not interested in some kind of monarchical dynasty for me and my posterity. I'm content to just go back to my little plot of land in Manasseh and try to live the gospel. That's good enough for me. He says in verse 23, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. It's not my sword, it was the sword of the Lord. He always gave God the glory. Which is fitting since he so well knew his own limitations. <laughs> that wasn't my arm that did it, believe me, you should see it. You can see the bone poking out under the skin, hardly any flesh on there at all. And God made that clear for us all. Now, so far so good for Gideon. And I wish, I wish we could end the story right there. But unfortunately, sometimes strength in one area of our life doesn't necessarily preclude weakness in other areas. And Gideon as, it was an imperfect man, and we see some imperfection here. In the next few verses, he asks everyone for the earrings of the Midianites. Now, what's interesting, remember back in the book of Exodus where uh, the, they plundered the riches of Egypt and what are they going to use to make the golden calf? And we can st we'll still have plenty of, of gold left over for tabernacle furnishings. We just want to have this little golden calf to, calf to worship. And so we'll just use our earrings. And they break off their earrings and give them to Aaron and boof, out comes this golden calf, right? Well, it's interesting that here it's the same idea. Gideon is saying, I don't need the spoils of war, Okay. We have conquered an innumerable host, and so there's all kinds of riches uh, to enrich Israel. All I'm asking for is the earrings. That's nothing. little stud here, a little ring there, and no big deal. Well, unfortunately, little things add up. That's part of what Pride Cycle is warning us about. And so what happens? Something as small as an earring, but collectively it adds up to 1,700 shekels of gold which is a massive amount, 1,700 shekels. Uh, if you remember, poor Akan was, was tempted by, what, 50 shekels worth, that golden wedge of Ophir? I mean, that's, this is a massive amount, even though it was just tiny little droplets of temptation that he was giving into. But what's it for? Verse 27, Gideon made an ephod thereof and put it in his city, even in Ophrah. Now, that doesn't sound too bad, does it? I mean, he makes an ephod. Isn't an ephod that robe, that tunic that the high priest wears under the breastplate of judgment? Oh, this is a, this is a spiritual symbol. Yeah, let's stick with that. Ah, but you're not a Levite, Gideon. You're from Manasseh. This, no, you have no authority to do this. We'll see this problem rise up later on. And what ends up happening with this golden ephod in Ophrah? Well, all Israel sent thither a whoring after it, which thing became a snare unto Gideon and to his house. Well, there's that word again, snare. Every time it comes up in the Old Testament, it seems to be suggesting false gods, graven images, outside influences pulling you away from gospel ground. And that's what happens to Gideon and to his family. They begin worshiping the works of their own hands, even if it was meant to 
point to something better, which was their hopes with the golden calf. No, look to God directly. Develop a relationship with him. Keep your covenants with him. And as good as Gideon was, this spells his downfall. You see, he has a numerous posterity. He even has one, one of his younger sons, named Abimelech. Now, this is a problem. Because if you know your Hebrew, Ab is father. Abi means my father. And Melech means king. So Abimelech means my father is a king. Now, for a guy that said, I'm not going to be your king. I don't want my sons to be your kings. No kings here. Why on earth would you name your son, my father's a king? <laughs> I mean, that's, that makes no sense. Now, was it Gideon naming him that? Maybe this is a name that Abimelech took upon himself later on, because as they're worshiping the works of their own hands, as they're starting to turn away from God, as the pride cycle is beginning to inch forward, here's someone who doesn't just want to be the son of a king, he wants to be the king himself. This is a dangerous name, and it's a dangerous thing that's beginning to unfold. Verse 33, it came to pass, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel turned again. Uh-oh, there's the pride cycle, turning, turning, this spinning stage. They went a-whoring after Balaam and made Baal Berith their god. So a-whoring, there's that covenant infidelity. And the children of Israel remembered not the Lord their God, who had delivered them out of the hands of all their enemies on every side. Now, not only did they forget God and his sword, they forgot the sword of Gideon as well. Verse 35, neither showed they kindness to the house of Jerubal, namely Gideon. That was another nickname that he had. So they weren't kind to the house of Gideon, according to all the goodness which he had showed unto Israel. You see, it's interesting that if you are forgetful of God, you tend to become forgetful of God's servants as well. This is King Noah. Who's the Lord and who, is, who are you, Abinadi? This is Pharaoh. Who's the Lord and who are you, Moses? Now it's the people of Israel. Who's God? I think he did some good deeds at some point in our past, but who needs him anymore? We're mighty. We're living in peace. And Gideon, who was that guy again? I don't even remember. Uh, do we owe him anything? I don't think so. What did he ever do for us? Oh, boy, have you forgotten. And that forgetfulness... That's now some pride from above on that part breeds some pride from below on Abimelech's part. And that's what we see in Judges chapter 9. Abimelech, my father the king, now wants to become king himself. He was one of Gideon's younger sons, like I said. He actually comes from a concubine. So again, probably feeling some pride from below on his part. Well, he conspires against all of his other half-brothers. My dad's the king. I want to be the heir. And so we're going to create a dynasty, and I'll be at the start of it. So what he ends up doing is he has all of his half-brothers slain. There's like 70 of them. Yeah, plural marriage. Uh, Gideon had a lot of children. And he wants to take the throne. Now, he kills them all except one, because one other, even younger than he, is able to escape and hide and save his own life. But everyone else is dead because Abimelech wants to take control of his own little kingdom. Now, this is Cain and Abel on a massive scale. This is Cain being tempted by the flocks of his brother and the chance to take them and to take control of whatever family. And so here's Abimelech doing likewise, a secret combination of sorts. 
the chance to murder and get gain. It's exactly what's happening here. Now, Abimelech's mother's family sees this and sees like, yeah, this is a chance for us to get ahead too. I mean, we were just from the concubine side of the family, but if our guy is Abimelech and we can side with him and he's already killed all of the competition, then we win the competition ourselves. It's, I mean, this is vain ambition all the way around. Verse 4, they gave him three score and ten pieces of silver out of the house of baal Berith. that's their false god, wherewith Abimelech hired vain and light persons which followed him. Now, that's most likely the kinds of people that were helping him commit all those murders against his half-siblings. Uh, but to, I love the definition or the description of them. They are vain and light. It's all just vanity. It's Abimelech's vanity that makes him want to become king. It's their vanity that makes them want to help. I mean, this is... I mean, you hear this sometimes in terms of politicians that are mere politicians until, instead of true statesmen and stateswomen. And it's all about themselves. And how do I get ahead? And how do I move into my these vain ambitions, well, I hitch my wagon to a rising star. And I don't even care if I agree with all of their, what they're saying or doing. If they're on the rise, then they'll take me up with them. And sometimes it even works in reverse, where it's like, oh, you're a rising star, let me hitch me, let me get, let me hire you. It's such an interesting verb. He hired vain and light persons. To, when you have to pay for someone to follow you, is that real discipleship? When you're not asking much of them, in fact, I'm just giving, I'll bribe you. Let me pay you for your loyalty. And you'll get something out of it more than just the immediate payment. Well, this youngest son of Gideon, his name is Jotham. He's the, the sole survivor. And what he ends up doing is he kind of sneaks, he's off in hiding. That's what's preserved his life. He sneaks back into, into his own homeland and climbs a mountain, Mount Gerizim. This is actually Gerizim and Ebal, the choice that you make, the valley of decision, right? Uh, will blessings and curses, I've set before you life and death. Amazing where all this is happening. And he stands on Mount Gerizim, which is the blessings side. And he overlooks Shechem, which is home to where this new little kingdom is uh, coming forth. And he shouts down upon them a parable. And it's the parable of the bramble. It's a great little forgotten parable here in Judges chapter 9. Starting in verse 8, he says, The trees went forth on a time to anoint a king over them. And they said unto the olive tree, Reign thou over us. Now, an olive tree would be a great choice for king. Uh, think of what olive oil does by way of light, by way of food, by way of flavor, by way of healing. I mean, the olive trees of Israel, there's Gethsemane for you, there's, it's such an amazing symbol. And so who better to be our king? And so all of the, the trees of the forest come together and they approach King Olive and say, please reign over us. Oh, just like you had all come, is this sounding familiar to the family of Gideon? When the, the surrounding people come and say, oh, Gideon, you have freed us from the enemy. Please rule and reign over us. Well, what did dad say? He said, no. And what does this olive tree say in the parable? I mean, can you picture this? This young boy up on the mountaintop yelling down this weird story about the, the king of the forest. Well, the olive tree says, Should I leave my fatness wherewith by me they honor God and man and go to be promoted over the trees? In other words, why would I seek to take authority when I'm so happy giving goodness. 
here I am just producing olives and giving oil and providing, in fact, providing ways to honor God and man. It was olive oil that was used to anoint kings and priests. I'm not going to use it to anoint myself. Can you imagine how self-serving that would be for an olive tree to use its own oil on itself, to anoint itself king? Are you kidding me? Not on your life. Why would I seek to ascend over others when I'm so content being servant of all? Which was Gideon's attitude. Well, the parable continues, uh, and it's amazing to read. It goes from olive tree down to fig tree, and from fig tree down to vine. But each time, these fruitful plants say, no, 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 of course not. Along the same lines as their superior, the olive. As a fig tree, I can provide food. Why would I need to rule? As a vine, I can produce grapes. And, and that, that's the goodness I'm trying to offer people. I'm not trying to take any obeisance from them. So what ends up happening next? When all of the noble plants refuse to give up productivity in order to gain power, then they're looking around like, well, who's, who's going to lead us then? And they, they look down, we went from olive to fig to vine, down to bramble. So picture some thorn, some weed, something that should have been plucked out and cast aside, because it's not producing anything. And yet, they turn to this bramble and ask it to lead. And it responds in verse 15. The bramble said unto the trees, If in truth ye anoint me king over you, then come and put your trust in my shadow. And if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now talk about lofty trees. Cedars of Lebanon, that's as, that's as good as it gets. Oh, But yeah, if you trust, if you want me, I'm, I'd be honored. Oh, believe me. Uh, I, I'd be happy to rule over you. So come, please, and trust in my shadow. Now the irony there is, I can picture a, an olive tree casting shadow, providing shade. I can definitely see the cedars of Lebanon doing that. And even with fig trees or even vineyards and vines, oh, there's going to be plenty of shade to trust in, to come out from under the beating heat of the sun. But a bramble? It's funny, I actually remember my, my wife and I were ma and pa on a, a youth trek in Utah. And we were out in kind of desert areas. And I don't know why we picked this one resting area, because there was no shade as far as the eye could see. And it was the sun beating down on us. And we were so hot and so tired as we were pulling these handcarts that honestly, it was so funny. We stopped to take a little lunch break. Uh, and people, I even tried it myself, were trying to like nestle up underneath sagebrush in hopes that they could get out of the beating sun. Have you seen sagebrush? It's not exactly a shade tree. It's not even a shade bush. Uh, and here's this bramble of sorts. And people just sticking their head as close to the, to the, the base of this sagebrush that at least my, my head might get a little bit of shade from this. And when I read this, this parable from Abimelech's little brother, that's the thought that comes into my head. You really think you're going to get much shelter, much protection? from that? Oh, put your trust in a bramble's shadow, and that is putting your trust in the arm of flesh. That's one thing 
dad refused to do. It's one thing God wouldn't let dad or the people do. Why on earth would you choose to do that now? And yet that's what they're choosing. Verse 16, Now therefore, if ye have done truly and sincerely, this is now when the parable ends and he gets crystal clear. If you've done truly and sincerely in that ye have made Abimelech king, and if ye have dealt well with Jerubal, in other words, Gideon and his house, and have done unto him according to the deserving of his hands, for my father fought for you and adventured his life far and delivered you out of the hand of Midian. Can you sense the frustration in this, little, in this young man? Is, are, is it, are you serious? Are you true? Are you sincere? Do you really want Abimelech to, lead, to guide you, lead you, protect you? Because he's nothing compared to his father, who was not a king by his own choosing. There's no such thing as Abimelech. Gideon was better than that. And I pray that you can be better than that yourselves. My older half-brother has proven he is not. Do not put your trust in him. Verse 19, If ye then have dealt truly and sincerely, there's those words again, with Jerubal, with Gideon that is, and with his house this day, then fine, rejoice ye in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, if this isn't truth, if this isn't sincerity, if it's just vain ambition, then great. Let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem. And that's exactly what's going to happen. You make your choice and make up your mind, but you will reap what you sow. And if it's the pride that's driven you into this, then it's the pride cycle that's going to rush you on to destruction. Exactly as as occurred. Parable now over, along with its chilling interpretation, this little brother then bolts down the mountain and goes back into hiding. Uh, runs for his life. But the seed has been planted in the hearts and minds of the people he, that heard him. And sure enough, three years later, an evil spirit is what it's called. An evil spirit develops between Abimelech and his so-called followers. I mean, couldn't you see that coming from the start? You were just bribing us. We didn't follow you out of loyalty. We followed you out of selfish ambition. And if we can use you to get ahead, then once you're no longer useful, then we're going to get ahead of you, which is what happens. There is rebellion between Abimelech and the people that are supposedly his own people. He tries to put down the rebellion. It's this little mini civil war that takes place. He ends up slaying his enemies. So he's thinking, ah, oh, okay, I've put them down back in their place, and now I can continue rising. Well, not quite, because there is a woman in this tower where the battle is taking place, and she throws down a piece of millstone, and it ends up hitting Abimelech in the head and fracturing his skull. He's still alive, but he knows he's about to die, and the last thing on earth a, pri a prideful person wants to do is have it known that he was killed by a mere woman. You see Abimelech as Sisera now? I can't let Deborah beat me. I can't let Jael hammer my, my head to the ground. A millstone, by the way. Oh, those who offend my little ones, better that a millstone were hung around their neck and them cast into the depths of the sea. Well, here's the death of a big one in his own eyes, that had offended so many little ones. 
and now it was a millstone that was bringing him down to destruction as well. But like I said, I can't let people think a woman beat me. So he turns to his servant. In fact, the servant that was supposed to protect him, his armor bearer, and says to him, fall upon me with your sword. You kill me. That way I will, it will be known that I was slain in battle by a man, not by a woman. Well, talk about poetic justice. The person that was supposed to protect him ends up being the person that slays him. He's crushed by the very type of person he was supposed to provide for. If you're king, you're supposed to provide for the women and children that can't provide for themselves. Well, a woman has now destroyed you. And like I said, it's a millstone. Millstones that are meant to grind grain into flour so people can have life. And no, it's grinding you into powder. Oh, and bringing you down to your own destruction. How's that for the end of a pride cycle? We saw Gideon rise in deliverance and his own son brought down to the depths of destruction. Chapter 10, we then see some more judges, some more rounds. Some of them are very brief. In verse 1, you meet Tola, who is a judge from the tribe of Issachar, and 23 years of peace. Then verse 3, Jair, who's a Gileadite, and there's 22 years of peace. We're flying through and without even getting any stories here. Because he's leading up to some bigger stories yet to come. Verse 6, The children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and served Balaam and Ashtaroth and the gods of Syria, there's to the northeast, and the gods of Zidon, there's the northwest, and the gods of Moab and the gods of the children of Ammon, there's southeast, and the gods of the Philistines, there's to the west, and forsook the Lord and served not him. As we have saw from the beginning of this book, you're not eliminating evil influences, and they will come back to bite you, and that's exactly what's happening here, from every possible direction. Verse 10, the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, they've hit rock bottom, now they're looking up, saying, we have sinned against thee, both because we have forsaken our God and also served Balaam. Finally, an honest confession. Verse 11, the Lord says to the children of Israel, did not I deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the children of Ammon and from the Philistines? In other words, haven't I done this a million times? Now God is the one feeling dizzy with all these rounds of the pride cycle. So he says in 13, Yet ye have forsaken me and served other gods, over and over and over. Wherefore, I will deliver you no more. He's, here's God saying, I'm at the end of my patience. And in fact, he then adds this. Go and cry unto the gods which ye have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your tribulation. In a way, he's doing what Gideon's father did. When they're up in arms that the altar of Baal has been destroyed. And he said, then let Baal bail himself out. Let Baal avenge himself if he's so offended that he's been mistreated this way. You really think your gods have that power? Then run the experiment. Let him prove it. And here God himself is doing that. Evidently, you're so drawn to the false gods of you name the ite that lives around you. Then trust in those ites and turn to them. You obviously don't trust in me enough to truly turn to me. So run the experiment. Choose other gods. Stick with them. And see how that turns out for you. I already mentioned the prodigal son. This reminds me of it. 
when he's out in this far country wasting his inheritance in riotous living. I mean, if there's one way to make friends, it's to spend money on them. We saw Abimelech do that, right? Uh, and the prodigal son, Abimelech was one himself. I'm sure was surrounded by people who loved him or wanted to hang out with him since he's the one that, hey, drinks on me. But what happens when he loses all of his money and is in want? Where are all those friends now? Nowhere to be found. And this poor prodigal is there among the pigs, wishing life were better. That's what's happening here. And God is letting the prodigal turn back to the friends he thought he had made off in Babylon. There, there's no one here to help you but me. When my wife was coming back into activity, she was inactive from age 15 to 20. They didn't want to have anything to do with God. And was off in college, just living the life and party time and going to every concert she could go. She was at one concert when all of a sudden it dawned on her in a moment of incredible clarity. You can almost picture the music sounding muffled in her mind and, and time kind of coming to a standstill as she realizes, surrounded by fun and feeling nothing. As it dawned on her, this is supposed to be where happiness is found. Then why do I feel so empty? What, what's with the shallow waters I've been wading in? And how do I find myself back in living water? Which she, she did. And she's never looked back. It's a, it, her conversion story, her reconversion story is, is incredible. But I see that here in terms of you've chosen other gods Find out what they'll do for you. And again, when we see how shallow their offerings are, then hopefully that jump starts the pride cycle in the right direction. It now becomes the humility cycle because I've been humbled and I know I need help. That's what happens in verse 15. The children of Israel say to the Lord, We have sinned. Here's more confession. Do thou unto us whatsoever seemeth good unto thee. Deliver us only, we pray thee, this day. There's total submission. There's meekness and humility and not trying to justify themselves. What do we see way back at the beginning of this book? You think about what you've done. You gain an awareness. And now they're aware and they're not putting the dukes up anymore. We will suffer whatever consequences we have to. But please let there be deliverance on the other side. I've mentioned it before, this incredible man that was having a membership council because of major mistakes. And when we talk to him about godly sorrow and the possible, possible outcomes of, of what he'd done, he said to us, in all humility and all sincerity, do anything that you need to do, whether it's being disfellowshipped or excommunicated, any of those things, it, it will be worth it if it brings deliverance on the other end. And it was amazing that with that level of humility, the level of mercy could soar because justice was already being served within his contrite and broken heart. It seems to be happening there among the Israelites. So what do they do? Verse 16, they put away the strange gods from among them. Finally, they served the Lord. Finally, and his soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. That passage should wake us up to what God is feeling 
as we go through the pride cycle. Uh, for us, it's we were wicked. But what do we think? And God was just angry. And that's what led us to destruction. Now here it's he was grieved for the misery of Israel. When you're moved upon by the proper spirit, then you can reprove betimes with sharpness because you're moved upon by the Holy Ghost. You can show forth an increase of love so that they know you're not their enemy. This is all DNC 121. And I can show that love because the love was what was motivating it all along. And so here this, this grieving God, sad that he has to administer justice, sad that he has to turn away because they've turned away from him, and grieving over the misery that they have self-induced and self-inflicted, it pains God not to be able to bail us out of every problem, but he is trying to balance short-term and long-term. He's trying to balance justice and mercy. He's trying to help us really change. And so in his perfect judgment, knowing just how long to wait before he comes to our aid, and just how much he can help, he's, want, he's hoping we will learn from our experience. Well, let's see if they do. In chapter 11, you meet another deliverer. God had been grieved. He hears their misery. He sees their prayers. He understands their contrition. And he raises up a new judge. This one is named Jephthah. In chapter 11, verse 1, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor. Now, that sounds like a better option than Gideon, who was scared to death of everything. But he was the son of an harlot. Oh, oh yikes. Okay. Um, not the best background here. In fact, verse 2, all of his half-brothers thrust out Jephthah and said unto him, Thou shalt not inherit in our father's house, for thou art the son of a strange woman. And Jephthah then flees from them. But here's the problem. What are you going to do and who are you going to turn to when your back's against the wall? Because the Ammonites come to fight against Israel. They're the enemy of the day. And the people are, what do we do? No one is quite the mighty man of valor that Jephthah is. So can we ignore the fact, kind of turn a blind eye to his parentage, uh, his checkered past, and turn to him, which is what they do. They say to him in verse 6, Come and be our captain, that we may fight with the children of Ammon. Yeah, when you're desperate, you'll take anyone. And I think that even applies to God. <laughs> when scraping the bottom of the barrel. Um, but throughout the book of Judges, by the way, it's like he's tried every tribe. And this one came from that tribe, and this one tried from this one, and this one, here's a Gileadite and a, uh, an illegitimate child. Let's not talk about that much. Um, if you have the courage to follow and the courage to lead, then go. And Jephthah does. In verse 7, he says to the elders of Gilead, Did not ye hate me and expel me out of my father's house? Why are ye come unto me now when ye are in distress? Right there, I see Jephthah as the personification of God himself the ultimate mighty man of valor. But people who look down at God during their periods of peace, uh, their times of ease, thinking, I don't, get out of here, I don't need you, I don't want you around. And then all of a sudden when things are hard and we're desperate, do we then finally turn to our potential deliverer? They're turning to Jephthah. Israel is turning to God. Isn't that how we do it? I mean, listen to this verse from Doctrine and Covenants 101, verse 8. In the day of their peace, they esteemed lightly my counsel. But in the day of their trouble, uh, then of necessity they feel after me. And that's what they were doing with Jephthah. 
Well, Jephthah agrees to lead the armies of Israel against the Ammonites. The king of the Ammonites demands all of their land back. This is the east side of Jordan, after all. And Jephthah reviews this whole history lesson going, guys, the reason we're in, quote unquote, your land is because you wouldn't let us pass through your land in peace. You fought us as we were on our way into the promised land. We, didn't, we weren't going to take the eastern side. But you kind of forced our hand. And so it is promised land annex. Promised land east, Transjordan, and, and we're keeping it. We have not wronged you. You wronged us. I think actually, I know I'm biased as a historian, but I think there's power in knowing our history well enough to understand that we may not be wronging you in the way that you thought. At least not in the way you're accusing us of. There's more to the story than meets the eye. In verse 27, Jephthah then tells the Ammonite king, Wherefore, I have not sinned against thee, but thou doest me wrong to war against me. The Lord the judge be judged this day between the children of Israel and the children of Ammon. I hope we can say that when people accuse us of things. I haven't attacked you. It's you that has attacked me. In verse 29, then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. And Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord. Here's a renewal of covenant. And he said, If thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into mine hand, then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the children of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now, you remember Gideon's if. If you'll just be with me, please help me be reassured in that. This one, Jephthah didn't need that reassurance. I knew God would be with me. I'm, I'm a mighty man of valor, and the Spirit of the Lord comes upon me, and I'm, I know I'll, He'll be with me. But sometimes when we're feeling good about things, we sometimes make rash promises. Sometimes, I, I saw it in teenagers coming back from EFY, and they're like, so full of the Spirit, I will never sin again. And if I ever do, it's like, oh, careful, careful, you probably will again. Or someone who's gone through a repentance process with their bishop and they talk about, I've heard, actually heard this from some that are coming back into activity and they talk about, I'm going to spend hours and hours every day studying my scriptures. And if I don't, well then, like, careful, careful, uh, slow and steady, okay? Don't go from, from underzealousness to overzealousness and miss the Goldilocks zone in the middle. Uh, run, but don't run faster than you have strength. Be careful here. In fact, do you remember back in the book of Numbers, there was that interesting passage about, about vows. And if uh, a wife or daughter makes a vow that the husband or father doesn't agree with, he can cancel it out. And again, we talked about getting past the, the patriarchy of that and just talking about spiritual mentors that might know a little bit better. And if we're young or growing in our faith or in our repentance or in our commitments, and if we make some rash promise and a mentor says, you know, why don't we slow down a little bit and not be, I just don't want you to be too harsh on yourself with your past or too demanding of yourself in, with your future. You'll get there, believe me, okay? I'm not trying to, to stop your progress. I'm just trying to help you see it's a marathon, not a sprint, and let's, let's pace ourselves, shall we? And I'm going to let you off the hook that you've just hung yourself on as far as that personal promise is concerned, okay? Uh, if there's any wrong there, put it on me. And that's what we learned back in Numbers chapter 30. Well, here Jephthah could have used a spiritual mentor to say, ooh, careful, careful. 
because it sounds like Jephthah probably assumes when I get back uh, from the victorious battle, then if a cow comes out, if an ox, if a, if, if a goat, if a sheep, lamb, you name it, whatever animal comes out first, I'm going to offer it to you. Sky's the limit. Uh, I'm not going to make that choice. And I'll just give it to you because of all that you've given to me. Now, that sounds really good as long as it's a sheep or a goat or an ox. Uh, but what if it's your daughter? Because that's what it ends up being. And the rashness, uh, the, the overzealousness here of Jephthah comes back to haunt him. Because verse 22, the Lord delivered the enemy into his hands. And then 34, and Jephthah came to Mizpah unto his house, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances. She was so excited that dad came home safe, but she was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. This is coming home from work to a, a child bouncing on the, in the front doorstep going, I'm so glad when daddy comes home. Best song in the children's hymn book, by the way. And here's a daughter, his beloved only child, so excited for his return. But he made a promise, rashly. In verse 35, it came to pass when he saw her that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low. Thou art one of them that trouble me, for I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back. I opened my mouth and put my foot in it. I opened my mouth and made a promise, and there's no going back on the promises I've made with God. And I promised, I ended up promising you to offer you to God. She says to him in verse 36, My father, if thou hast opened thy mouth unto the Lord, do to me according to that which hath proceeded out of thy mouth. It's amazing that she would be willing to honor her father's commitment, even when he might be waffling right then. Makes me wonder sometimes, do we help people keep their promises or make it harder for them to do so? Are we always trying to provide outs on things and trying to rationalize or justify or explain away the need to keep our covenants? Now again, before the fact, he could have used a wise mentor saying, let's be a little more careful or a little more specific, a little more wise. But once the promise was there and in ancient Israel, it was truly binding. Jephthah knew it. His daughter did too. Now be careful here because we automatically assume, and there have been rabbis throughout time that have assumed this as well, but it doesn't have to be this way. The assumption is, well, you were going to offer your sheep or your goat or your oxen as a burnt offering to God. So now he has to sacrifice his daughter as a burnt offering on some altar. That's paganism. That's not Israelite worship. And so careful about jumping to that conclusion. There are more than one way to offer something to God. So look at the aftermath, verse 37. She said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months, that I may go up and down upon the mountains and bewail my virginity, I and my fellows. And that's exactly what she does. Verse 39, It came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto her father. She didn't have to. She could have just, you know, I got two months, I got a head start. I'm out of here. I'm never coming back. But she came back 
she returned unto her father, who did with her according to his vow, which he had vowed. And she knew no man. Now, is this child sacrifice? Is this a burnt offering of his own flesh and blood? I, I would say no. Because of this focus on she's going to bewail her virginity, and then at the end again, she knew no man. The focus here is on virginity, chastity, sexual abstinence. It's on celibacy. And as we learn from Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel, the desire to have posterity is all-consuming in ancient Israel, as it should still be in modern Israel. And if she's being offered to the Lord as a lifetime servant, think about what we learned in Numbers chapter 6 about the Nazarite vow. That when you're a Nazarite, you don't cut your hair. You don't eat fruit of the vine. We'll learn more about Nazarites in a moment when we get to Samson. Uh, but it's a time period that is fully dedicating the person to God. They are set apart. That's what Nazarite is, separation. And so rather than offering a sheep or a lamb as a burnt offering, picture Jephthah, my sweet dear daughter, my only child, the one through whom my posterity would come to preserve my name and your name in Israel. How devastating this is, but I promised to give to God whatever I first saw when I came home. And so, are you willing to take upon yourself a lifelong Nazarite vow, which will preclude for you the chance to become a mother at least a literal mother in Israel. I pray you can become a mother in Israel along the lines of a Deborah. You can make a difference. You can serve at the tabernacle. You can make needlework for the veils. You can give your life to God since God gave all for us. Will you do that? And she did. In verse 39, from then on out, it was a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in a year. Which again, to me, adds something to this possibility. Her preference would have been to be a mother. To raise up literal seed to her father, to herself, to, her, to a husband. But none of those blessings would be hers in this life. And so... The other daughters of Israel, recognizing her level of self-sacrifice to put God and covenant first, to stay within those confines of covenant and not look outside or to run away, even if with a two-month head start, that is cause for mourning because of what she lost. But let's confine that, those, those cries to four days in the year because we need to move on. And so did the daughter of Jephthah. I'm sure she took two months to mourn her own virginity, her lack of literal motherhood, but then stayed within the confines of covenant and, and lived a life of self-sacrifice honoring the covenants her father had made. To me, there's something there, even if you think about celibacy and abstinence and so on, and for those, whether for a time period of singleness or a lifetime of not finding your eternal companion or not being in a place based on your own sexual identity, to be able to have children within the confines of covenant, 
there will be a period of mourning. And when I've talked with students that have wrestled with that and decided, I experience same-gender attraction uh, to a degree that a heterosexual marriage would never be an option in this life for me. But I know the gospel is true. I know God has a plan for me. I know the plan will bless me eternally, come what may. And I plan to keep this covenant. And celibacy will be my life. I, I do sense a period of mourning in them, but I also sense a commitment to that covenant and a desire to move forward. And they limit their lamentation. They feel those emotions as they naturally could and should. How can you not? But with the power of God, knowing the blessings that will come, they're able to move forward with faith, just as the daughter of Jephthah did. Well, chapter 12, one last chapter, and then we get to this climax of the story of the book of Judges. In chapter 12, it's about Gileadites. That's Jephthah's people. But they end up fighting against Ephraimites. And so we have a bit of a civil war going on within Israel. Chapter 12, verse 1, The men of Ephraim gathered themselves together and went northward and said unto Jephthah, Wherefore passest thou over to fight against the children of Ammon? And didst not call us to go with thee? We will burn thine house upon thee with fire. I mean, speaking of rash decisions, I mean, this is Ephraim. This is the same bunch that said something similar to Gideon. Why didn't you, pick on, why didn't you choose us first? We're the, we're the birthright tribe. We should be leading the, the armies. In some ways, Gideon, first of all, would have said, yeah, I wish you had. Uh, you should have. I didn't ask for this. Well, this one, Jephthah didn't ask for it either, but he was a mighty man of valor. And why not bring along the Ephraimites? Well, where were you when I needed you to start? In verse 2, Jephthah said unto them, I and my people were at great strife with the children of Ammon. And when I called you, you delivered me not out of their hands. When I saw that you delivered me not, fine. I put my life in my hands and passed over against the children of Ammon, and the Lord delivered them into my hand. Wherefore then are ye come up unto me this day to fight against me? Wrong's on you, not on me. It's not a matter of why didn't I call. It's why didn't you come? Jephthah is a mighty man of valor. And if your hands aren't coming, then I'm trusting my own hands and putting myself in the hands of God, and that's all I needed. That's all I got. But it worked. The Gileadites then, under Jephthah, end up fighting against the Ephraimites. Again, this little civil war. They beat them. But then as the, this is a strange story, but as the Ephraimites are trying to escape, you know, retreat, run for their lives, Jephthah and his men are guarding like this pass by the river. And then what happens, verse 5, each retreating soldier that tries to escape through their checkpoint, they ask them, art thou an Ephraimite? Because if you're an Ephraimite, we're going to destroy you. You're the enemy here. Now, if the person says, nay, no, oh, no, not me. Oh, why? Are you looking for Ephraimites? Oh, yeah, we're going to kill them all. Oh, then, <clears throat> yeah, me, definitely. Definitely not an Ephraimite. If they say nay, then said they unto him, Say now Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth. For he could not frame to pronounce it right. Then they took him and slew him at the passages of Jordan. And there fell at that time of the Ephraimites forty and two thousand. I mean, major casualties here. All over a word. Now, the real words that it was over were the clashing words between Jephthah and the people of, of Ephraim. 
But the word that they chose, this is such an interesting story. It, it, shibboleth has actually even become an English word. Or that Hebrew word is now in the English vocabulary, meaning some kind of custom or idiosyncrasy of a certain group of people that's unique to them. Uh, to often it refers to something that seems to be outmoded or it's like, get, get past that. But it's this cultural shibboleth. Now, what they're doing here is... Evidently, the Ephraimites, in Hebrew, there's a letter, sheen. It looks kind of like a, a fancy W if you're looking at the Hebrew letter. Uh, but it makes the sh sound and the sh sound, depending on some of the, the vocalization, the dots that go along with it. So if you're reading Hebrew and you see that letter, you kind of have to know, is this a sh sound or a s sound? And according to this passage... Other people, like Jephthah and the Gileadites, could say the sh sound, but it was really hard for an Ephraimite to wrap his mouth around that sound. And so when he tried to say sh, it would come out s. Now, any of you who have learned a foreign language, have you struggled with that yourself? When I was a little boy, I couldn't say my R's. So I was Joe at Halvason. And my mouth just wouldn't wrap around that R. Now, a lot of people who go on Spanish-speaking missions have a hard time rolling their R's. Uh, and so they'll, uh, you can tell that, that you don't quite have the accent down. And that's how, you, they, how, that's how the Gileadites could identify an Ephraimite. Oh, you're an Ephraimite, like you said? Great. Say the word shibboleth. And they're like, oh, okay, shibboleth. What, what, what was that? Shibboleth. Yeah, you're definitely an Ephraimite. Now, to make this a little bit more applicable since I'm not worried about uh, our pronunciation of things. I do worry sometimes, though, about how oh, not a physical linguistic accent, but what do we talk about and what do we say about holy things? What is our accent of faith, so to speak? And in our thoughts and in our words and in our actions, can people tell if we are true disciples of Jesus Christ? Or do our words betray us? Do our actions betray us? Oh, those people say that they're Christians, but they haven't treated me in a Christ-like way. Is that our shibboleth? Or when people want to know who we're following, do we speak? Do we sound? Do we look? Do we act? Is it obvious to them that we are who we say we are? We're God's people trying to, who are God's chosen people, trying to choose everyone else to be chosen as well. We're trying to be true disciples of Jesus Christ. That's one lesson Judges 12 teaches me. He then walks you through a couple of other quick judges, just in rapid succession. Ibzon of Bethlehem. Not sure if that's Bethlehem and Judah or Bethlehem and Zebulun. There's two possibilities there. There's Elon, who is from Zebulun. There's Abdon, who's a Pirathonite from the tribe of Ephraim. Again, we don't get their stories. But in some ways, maybe the Lord is getting impatient with the pride cycle. Like, can we just move on? Uh, because I really want to get to the one that seems to encapsulate it all. And that's the story of Samson. And with this, we get Judges 13 and 14 and 15 and 16. Uh, the, the, the story really slows down here. Because there's no better example of a potential judge who really could have pulled it off that succumbs to the pride cycle and leads to his own downfall. 
That's the story of, judge, of Samson in a nutshell. That's the story of judges in a nutshell. So let's meet this child of promise, great potential. 13.1, the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. Well, there's pride cycle, another round. I told you you get dizzy. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines 40 years. And so we're now in the destruction phase. But what comes next if they'll simply humble themselves and turn to the Lord? Well, deliverance through a judge that's raised up. And you only have to wait till verse 2 before we start seeing him come onto the scene. There was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and bare not. Sound like Sarah? Like Rebecca? Like Rachel? Like Hannah next week? Like Elizabeth in the New Testament? And what do all these women have in common? They're all barren, and they all end up having children. Miracle children. So the way the narrative begins here, the, the, uh, the author is setting up the reader for an expectation. Do we have a miracle on the way? Uh, you better believe it. Verse 3, the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold now, thou art barren and bearest not. It's like, duh, we just learned that in the last verse. Did you really have to remind me? But here's the promise. Thou shalt conceive and bear a son. She is promised the ultimate blessing here. Verse 4, Now therefore beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine nor strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. So this miracle child, this child of promise, is being foreordained, set apart from birth itself, he will grow to be the deliverer of Israel. And so whatever you're taking into yourself during pregnancy, I mean, it's amazing to watch. I mean, my wife, through our five pregnancies, she was very careful what she ate because she knew not only was, and it's not just I am what I eat, it's my child is what I eat. And so... Oh, prenatal vitamins and being careful with food and, and nutrition and so on because I am literally creating the mortal tabernacle of this spirit child. Well, mom here is going to be very careful. It's actually interesting for my child to be a Nazarite in a way I have to be a Nazarite first. I think there's something beautiful there about parenting that if I hope to raise children of promise, will I keep the promises myself? Will I live in such a way that my children will see in me an example worth following? They'll still have their agency. They'll still make up their mind. And we see that sadly in Samson's story. But is there anything I can do to make sure I fill myself with what God would offer me so I have something to give to my children? Well, she tells her husband about this expectation and about this promised miracle. Because remember, the angel only appeared to the woman. Manoah, the husband, is kind of in the dark about all of this. But now he hears, and in verse 8, Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O my Lord, let the man of God, which thou didst send, come again unto us. So I want to really hear this for myself. But more than just second witness, it's for this. And teach us what we shall do unto the child that shall be born. You see what Manoah's doing there? He's showing incredible wisdom by admitting his lack of wisdom. 
I don't know how to raise a child of promise. I don't know how to, <laughs> my wife's about to deliver a deliverer. I, what do we do after that? Uh, sure, she'll be really careful during pregnancy uh, to be a Nazarite of sorts herself. But once the child comes, will you please teach us what we should do for him? I imagine that's the prayer that every parent offers when they know a child is about to join the family. Don't, don't let me mess this up. Is there a manual that comes <laughs> attached? Well, yeah, that's the scriptures. At least it was for me. You see, my wife and I were going to have our first child in 2001. And by then, uh, I think I'd started it the year before, where I would read a little bit of each of the standard works every day to complete it all in a year. So January 1st, I would start Genesis 1, Mo Matthew 1, 1 Nephi 1, DNC 1, Moses 1, and read a little bit every day. It was awesome. It really felt like all the standard works were coming together into one great whole. But when January 1st, 2001 rolled around, I realized this year I'm becoming a father. And I have no idea what I'm doing. So, God, will you please send the messenger to tell us what we should do for this child? Well, he already sent me the messenger. It's in print right in front of me. And so that year, I, I bought a new set of scriptures, just a cheap set, uh, triple combo and Bible, and began reading a little bit every day through all standard works, just looking for fatherhood. I even have a label on the outside of that set of scriptures. It just says fatherhood in big letters. And I went through in 2001 every word of the standard works trying to understand what the father would teach this father about fatherhood. It was a gift I intended to give to my daughter and any other children that might follow in her way. I'm grateful for that year of learning. And it's been followed by lots and lots of on-the-job learning, too. Okay, I'm still, I still haven't mastered that. But I am grateful that God is willing to teach us what to do for our children. Next, verse 9, God hearkened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again unto the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So, again, he's kind of off on his own. It's like, how come it always happens to her and not to me? Well, I might tell you something. And are we willing to trust our marriage partner as far as insights that she or he receive about how to raise our children? Ultimately, we need to become one on this and become equally yoked, but are we willing to listen to one another's perspectives? He was, but he really wanted it for himself. She knew it, and so she runs out to get him and says, Honey, come here. That guy, the, the messenger you were praying for, he came back to me. Uh, but you can now come. So he does. They ask in verse 12, How shall we order the child, and how shall we do unto him? Same question as before. How do we raise your child, Father in heaven? The angel then repeats all the instructions he'd given to Manoah's wife before. Be very careful how you raise him. Raise him as a Nazarite from day one. The way the angel puts it, 13 and 14, Of all that I said unto the woman, let her beware. She may not eat of anything that cometh of the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Interesting that this is going to, in some ways, inconvenience Manoah as well. Like, wait, she has to live a certain strict diet? Well, I guess, I'm, I guess I'll be eating certain things and not eating other things myself. Are we willing to inconvenience ourselves to help other people keep their covenants? That's the story of the daughter of Jephthah, right? 
And so Manoah, make sure she can keep all that is expected of her. That's part of what is expected of you. Are we that supportive in our spouse's role? Realizing that's part of our role as well. Verse 17, Manoah said unto the angel of the Lord, What is thy name, that when thy sayings come to pass, we may do thee honor? And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Why askest thou thus after my name, seeing it is secret? Now that's an odd exchange. This is a name that is not to be revealed. This is a name that is this angel, this messenger, is holding sacred and keeping secret. Uh, you remember way back in Genesis 32 when Jacob's at Jacob's ladder and he's wrestling the angel and he asks a similar question, what's your name? And the angel says, wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? Oh, second time in scripture that there's some true messenger being asked by a mere mortal, what's your name? And then the messenger doesn't want to give it. I think there's more than meets the eye as far as what is happening here with this child of promise, this miracle boy. So verse 19, Manoah took a kid with a meat offering and offered it upon a rock unto the Lord. And the angel did wondrously. And Manoah and his wife looked on. Now I wish I knew what the angel was doing in verse 19. Whatever it was, it was wondrous. We saw when Gideon laid out food, another true messenger had it consumed by fire from the rock. Is there something else going on? But it's something that they see, something they hear, something that they're looking upon and are amazed by it. Whatever it is, this messenger is conveying to them. Finally, verse 24 and 5, the woman bare a son, called his name Samson, and the child grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to move him at times in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshtael. And then the story really picks up speed. Judges 14, we see Samson begin to go out against the Philistines. They're the, they're the enemy of the, of the week this time. Verse 1, Samson went down to Timnath and saw a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. Now this is the enemy. These are the people you're supposed to be fighting against. That's why do you think the Spirit of the Lord is beginning to move you at times so you can deliver Israel from the Philistine host? Well, that's just a, this woman of the Philistines. Surely she's not an enemy. At least I hope she's not, because I'm kind of smitten with her. Now, we're going to see this over and over and over with Samson. He's most famous for his strength. We need to spend more time focusing on his weakness. And women were one of his main weaknesses. So he's gone down to Timnath. He sees this woman. Verse 2, he comes back up. He tells his father, his mother, and said, I've seen a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me to wife. Well, how's that for uh, a marriage proposal of sorts? Now, I mean, if it's supposed to be arranged from father to father, then dad, she's the one. Go get her for me. Now that, <clears throat> I'm sure that, that Manoah and his wife raised Samson as well as they possibly could. They had divine direction on the subject, right? They had been told and taught what to do to raise him. And yet somehow he turned into this, I mean, what do you sense from him in verse 2? I, I get a sense of a, a great sense of entitlement, 
someone who's used to making demands and getting his own way, because it's not, Father, please, or would you consider, or what do you think? I mean, I know it's a Philistine, and we're Israelites. I, that's marriage outside the covenant. What do you feel about this? Because mom and dad would be, no, son, we have been trying to raise you as a Nazarite, set apart. You're even living higher than Israelite standards. And basic Israelite standards are to stay within the covenant. Oh, you're the child of promise. You're the miracle boy. You're the deliverer in training. You can't go there. And yet, Samson, eh, no problem going down to the Philistines. So, John's his way down to Timnath. Oh, falls in love. Love at first sight, or at least lust at first sight. And that's the one I want. And so, Dad, get her. And I worry about... Again, as we come to know Samson for his incredible physical strength, does that some, speaking of pride cycle, right? Uh, here's the personification of it, and someone that's so mighty, and then that begins to go to his head. And he forgets the kind of life that brought those blessings to him. And it's just me. I mean, look at these muscles. Look at this arm of flesh. I don't need God. Therefore, I don't need to do what God would ask of me. In fact, I don't even need to ask anything of others. I can make demands on them, and they're supposed to do what I say. Okay? So, Dad, do it. Get it. Get her for me to wife. Verse 3, Then his father and his mother said unto him, Is there never a woman among the daughters of thy brethren, or among all my people, that thou goest to take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines? Don't you understand what you're asking for, son? There are righteous daughters of Israel all around you. Find a wonderful Danite damsel right here within our own tribe and raise up seed within the covenant. But what does Samson say? He said unto his father, Get her for me, for she pleaseth me well. I don't care about marriage outside the covenant. Uh, what would the point of your Nazarite vows be then? This ruins the whole thing. You can't go there, son. But, verse 4 this is an interesting passage. His father and his mother knew not that it was of the Lord that he sought an occasion against the Philistines. For at that time, the Philistines had dominion over Israel. Now be careful before you read too much into that. It was of the Lord. Well, what was? Uh, Samson's desire to marry outside the covenant? I wouldn't say that was of the Lord. But allowing this... I'll put it this way. Honoring Samson's agency, is that of the Lord? Well, he's big on honoring agency, right? But what else is he big on? He's big on bringing good even out of our poor judgment. He's that, he's that good of a judge. He can even uh, turn something good out of a poor choice that we've made. He can get beauty out of ashes. And this desire on Samson's part, which God did not plant into him, but that's Samson's agency working on himself. He wants that. Well, if I'm going to honor agency, is there a way for me to turn this for Israel's good? Actually, there is. Since we're trying to deliver Israel from the Philistines, let's see if we can deliver Samson from this Philistine woman, even if we have to do it in a difficult way. See how it unfolds. Verse 5 then went Samson down and his father and his mother to Timnath. 
and came to the vineyards of Timnath, and behold, a young lion roared against him. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he rent him as he would have rent a kid. And he had nothing in his hand, but he told not his father or his mother what he had done. So he's off on his own in this moment. He runs into a young lion and tears it apart. He said, rent it like he would have rent a kid. Picture a small goat. Uh, and yet this lion that comes out and attacks Samson, he tears it apart with his bare hands. He has no weapon in his hand. How did he do it? The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. Now, would Samson have even recognized that it was the Spirit of God that did it? That it was the arm of the Lord? Or would he have looked at his bulging biceps and thought, I got this. Uh, it wasn't the Spirit of the Lord that came mightily upon me. It was my own adrenaline that began rushing through. And, and I, I, can handle, I can handle lions. Now, this is the first time that we become truly amazed by Samson's strength. But like I said, look past his strength at Samson's weakness. Because to me, the most important word in, ver in these verses is the word vineyards. Where did the lion attack him? In the vineyards of Timnath. Now, Timnath is a problem because that's Philistine territory. You're not supposed to be in there. That's enemy, that's across enemy lines. But even more than that, what on earth is a Nazarite ever doing in a vineyard? One of the chief components of the Nazarite vow is never to consume anything from the fruit of the vine. No grapes, no wine, no raisins, none of that. So I can't think of a single good reason why Samson would ever be in a vineyard, let alone a Philistine one. And yet, you understand what I'm getting at here? To me, this is so applicable that here's somebody who feels like I can put myself in harm's way because I'm strong enough to get out of it. I can go to the party where alcohol is being served or drugs are being you know, distributed or immorality is rampant because I'm not going to fall to those things. I can, I can try a little and I'm not going to become addicted or fill in the blanks however you need to fill in the blanks. But do we sometimes fall prey to that? I can put myself in harm's way because I'm strong enough to get out of it. Oh, Samson, yes, you're strong enough to control a lion. But are you strong enough to control yourself? We'll see. And see we do. Samson ends up going. Uh, they, he wants to marry this Philistine beauty. And so they do. They celebrate the wedding feast among the Philistines. Here's the deliverer among the people he's supposed to be delivering his own people from. Okay, strange bedfellows here. But while he's there for the wedding feast, he makes up a riddle based on what he had done with the lion. It's strange. I mean, he sees later at the carcass of the lion and there's this uh, beehive basically there and honeycomb coming in. So he's like, huh, this would be a really cool riddle about strength and lion and sweetness and honey. And I'm just going to throw out strength and sweetness and see what they come up with. This is so rare, so odd. Honey coming out of a lion. They're never going to figure it out. And so I'm going to make a bet on this riddle and tell them, hey, I've got a riddle for you. If you can figure it out, I will give you guys great wealth, like 30 changes of garments. But if you can't figure it out, then you lose the bet and you owe me all of that. 
So what is Samson doing here? He's trying to make a bet he can't lose. That sounds true to his character. I can go into a vineyard and I can't lose. Look at me. Uh, I'm going to make a riddle. See, th that one was physical strength. This one is now intellectual strength. So now he's like proud of his mind. And I'm going to come up with a riddle that only I know and none of you will ever be able to solve. Some of us fall, to, fall prey to pride of, of physical prowess. Others fall pr prey to intellectual pride. There's so many forms of it. That's why it's the universal sin. And Samson's dealing with both. Well, he makes this bet he doesn't think he can lose. This is a surefire thing. And what's it for? I'm going to get rich from this. I stand to, to, to win uh, and to gain by it. Well, as he says, you can do it anytime before the end of the wedding feast. And it's a seven-day feast. By the end, they're starting to get nervous. Uh, well, they got nervous from the very beginning when they hear it. They're like, anybody have any idea what the strength and the sweetness that he's talking about? And nobody can figure it out. So a few days into it, they go to Samson's bride. And they threaten her. This is everybody out for themselves. Samson want to get something for himself. These people of the Philistines want to get something for, them, for themselves. So they go to this bride and, and threaten her. If you don't find out from Samson what this riddle is, then, then you're going to pay the price. They say in 15, entice thy husband that he may declare unto us the riddle, lest we burn thee and thy father's house with fire. How's that for a threat? Well, highly motivated. And not too loyal to her own husband, if she probably would have told the truth to, he could have defended her and taken on the enemy himself. No, verse 16, Samson's wife wept before him and said, Thou dost but hate me and lovest me not. Thou hast put forth a riddle unto the children of my people and hast not told it me. And she wept before him the seven days while their feast lasted. And it came to pass on the seventh day that he told her, because she lay sore upon him. And she told the riddle to the children of her people. Sound a little like Potiphar's wife with Joseph? It should, as she is just persuading, pleading, begging him day by day, just wearing him down, at least hoping to. Joseph wouldn't be, wasn't willing to be worn down. Sadly, Samson was. So he tells her everything. She tells them everything. They come back and guess what, Samson? Out of our genius, we know the answer to your riddle. By the way, if looking back to, to Potiphar's wife is one thing. Looking forward to Delilah is the other. Because what just happened there is going to happen in a more intense echo once we meet Delilah in a few, in a few minutes. His response, Samson's that is, once they solved the riddle, he says to them in verse 18, and please forgive, actually don't forgive, uh, be aware of the crass language. He says to these, these fellow riddlers, if ye had not plowed with my heifer, ye had not found out my riddle. Now that's a horrible way to describe your own bride. If you hadn't plowed with my heifer. Uh, when we were talking about the red heifer, by the way, one of you who knows farming better than I do explained to me that a heifer is simply a cow that has not yet had a calf. Oh, okay. So this is a virgin cow. And here's this Philistine woman that, as far as Samson is concerned, oh, that's my heifer. That's my cow that uh, hasn't had a calf yet. Yikes. Um, I don't think I'd ever want to 
use terms like that for anyone that means something to me. Is this, again, a slight hint to the personality of Samson? I get what I want, which seems to just suggest that what he wants, even if it's a person, is just an object that he can lay claim to. I get a sense, I hope I'm not reading too much into it, but I do get a sense there in that comment that here's a man who has objectified his wife, which makes sense if he just like Caesar once down in Timnath and says, that's the one for me. Huh? Why? Because of who she is or what she'll do for you or how it'll make you look or feel. It seems, again, like objectification. But the Lord can get something out of it. Verse 19, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Here's God trying to make something positive out of something negative. And Samson went down to Ashkelon, Philistine territory, and slew 30 men of them, and took their spoil, and gave change of garments unto them which expounded the riddle. And his anger was kindled, and he went up to his father's house. But Samson's wife was given to his companion, whom he had used as his friend. Some translations say that was Samson's best man at the wedding. Now that's interesting, because in some ways, wow, Samson didn't end up marrying outside the covenant after all. At least there doesn't seem to be any result of that. And so, huh, did God not only get something good out of it, as far as we're trying to expel Philistines, we're trying to take the war to them, and this is my mighty deliverer. Because this is the first time we really see him attacking Philistines. And what motivated him to do it? Not loyalty to the God of Israel. Not even, I'm trying to free my people. He was too self-centered and self-serving for that. But now that I lost the bet that I thought was surefire, I don't have 30 changes of clothing to give. I was going to get it. I was trying to enrich myself. Well, I'm certainly not going to impoverish myself. So what am I going to do? I'm going to find 30 rich Philistines, kill them, take all their stuff, and then pay off my debt. That's horrible. And we see a lot of horribleness in Samson. But it's as if God is trying to get him moving in the direction of his mission to fight Philistines and free the people from them. And in the meantime, you came back, and I guess there's no loyalty on the Philistine side, and his soon-to-be supposed father-in-law pulled a switcheroo here, and now Samson has no Philistine wife. Oh, well, I'm trying to save you from yourself, okay? I'm trying to jumpstart your mission and keep you from falling prey to your own weaknesses. Chapter 15 then follows. Samson tries to get his wife back, but is denied. He's so angry in reaction that he takes it out on the Philistines. In verse 4, Samson went and caught 300 foxes. Now, can you imagine this? Picture this one unfolding. Somebody strong enough, again, arm of flesh, that he can somehow gather uh, 300 foxes that he's captured. But then notice what he does with them. He took firebrands and turned tail to tail and put a firebrand in the midst between two tails. And when he had set the brands on fire, he let them go into the standing corn of the Philistines and burnt up both the shocks and also the standing corn with the vineyards and olives. Now picture what's happening here. Picture this hulking, you know, Goliath of a man, uh, Samson, and he grabs, he's got 300 foxes now under his control, and he picks one up by a tail and picks up the other by a tail. These are living foxes. And they're hanging from their tails. Picture them like snapping and biting and scratching and just trying to get away. And this mighty man just is trying to hold them tight enough to tie their tails together. It's going to hurt these foxes. But he ties the, the tails together and sticks a torch right in the knot. 
And then he lights, he does this 150 times, okay? He's made 150 little ticking time bombs out of living flesh, living fox. And then he lights the fuse and throws these 150 into the Philistine grain fields. Now imagine if you have a, a lighted torch, a fire tied to your tail. I'm going to run away from that as much as I can. Unfortunately, I'm also tied to another fox that's feeling the same pressure. And so that's why I call this a ticking time bomb. That it's, These things are going to run wildly. I can't imagine. I mean, as far as military technology is concerned, forget a chariot. How about a, a fox bomb? Okay, a fire fox. Maybe this is where you get it. And here they are running away from each other, but wreaking havoc everywhere they go. And no wonder the fields of the Philistines go up in flame. By the way, we saw this right in the aftermath of an ill-chosen marriage. I do think this is a pretty powerful metaphor for a bad marriage. Where there's two people that are tied together, but are trying as hard as they can to get away from each other. Because they have things in the marriage or things attached to themselves that are causing major friction and even fire. And in my zeal to get away from my own problems, my lesser self, or to get away from a person with problems of their own, we end up wreaking havoc and burning to the ground our own family. I see it happening because it's not just one couple anymore. It's 150 pairs of foxes. It's an innumerable number of broken homes that are igniting our own society and, and leaving it in ashes. I think we need to be careful about, about the fires we light and careful about the people we tie ourselves to. Samson was not careful. I pray that we can be. Well, whatever lessons we learned from this, the Philistines weren't out to learn lessons. They were livid. Now their temperature rises. They're the ones on fire now. And they're so angry about what, you see this is going back and forth, tit for tat. And it's like, well, you did this and now I'm going to do this. And now you're going to do this. And pretty soon we even lose track of who started it. That doesn't matter. Neither one is ending it. So the Philistines ready to avenge the destruction of their own fields. They go and speaking of burning, they burn Samson's wife or bride and her father and seems like his whole family. Uh, you destroy everything that matters to us temporally. Well, we're going to destroy everything that mattered to you emotionally. And so now they have been, they are, are martyrs to the mistakes of Samson and, and their own people. So then what does he do? Well, you avenge that. I'm now going to avenge that. And again, we escalate backward, back and forth. He avenges their death with what's called a great slaughter. That's in verse 8. And then the Philistines come back to avenge that by going up to battle against the people of Judah. Verse 10, the men of Judah said, why are ye come up against us? And they answered, to bind Samson are we come up, to do to him as he hath done to us. But then when the men of Judah ask Samson what he's thinking, bringing all this danger upon them, his response in verse 11, as they did unto me, so have I done unto them. You see this escalating cycle of revenge? Well, they hit me. Well, because they hit me. And well, he burned this. Well, they burned that. 
and back and forth, we're only going to do to him what he did to us. Well, Samson, what are you up to? Well, I'm only doing to them what they did to me. That, that, we saw a pride cycle. Here's a pride cycle. Here's a vengeance cycle. Well, the men of Judah are like, we don't want to have anything to do with this. This is between you and them. So please leave us out of it. And since you're here, like with us, and they're going to take out their frustration on us, will you please let, this is interesting, because it's like, um, you're too strong for us too. Will you let us tie you up and deliver you over? This is like the Philistines want extradition. And they're going to come and destroy us if we don't hand you back over to them. So will you please let us do it? And Samson's like, well, as long as you promise not to fight me alongside them. So like I can, ta I can handle the Philistines by myself. I don't want to have to have Philistines on one side and Judahites on the other. So yeah, go ahead, tie me up. Again, does this sound like what we're learning about Samson? Oh, vineyards of Timnath. Okay, I got in trouble. A lion jumped out to get me. Big deal. I got out of it. Okay, now I've got myself into trouble with these Philistines, and, and now the Judahites are mad at me, and they're going to tie me up, but oh well. I can always get out of my problems. And so, sure, do it. And so they bind him, and they deliver him over to the Philistines. But then the story really gets intense. Verse 14, when he came unto Lehi, there's a name that Latter-day Saints like from the Book of Mormon, but he, this is a town. When they came to Lehi, the Philistines shouted against him, it's like, yes, we finally have him right where we want him. He's bound right, right before us. But the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. That keeps happening. He probably didn't realize it was God, thought it was him. But the cords that were upon his arms became as flax that was burnt with fire. And his bands loosed from off his hands. He found a new jawbone of an ass and put forth his hand and took it and slew a thousand men therewith. Once again... I'm okay being in harm's way because I'm always strong enough to get out of it. And so it was there in the land of Lehi. Now, Lehi in Hebrew means jaw. And so there's a play on words here. And whether it was Lehi first and then he finds the jawbone or where he, whether he takes the jawbone and they rename the city afterwards, hard to tell. But he takes this jawbone and he wields that as his weapon. I mean, he could take on a single lion with his bare hands, but a thousand Philistines? I might need something. So I'll just find anything, and he takes this thing and starts smashing his way through the enemy army after having already broken out of the bands that he was in. By the way, how were those bands described? They became as flax, burnt with fire. Oh, flax is something so thin Imagine it, I mean, this is a spider web that he's being wrapped up in. That's how it felt to him once the Spirit of God came upon him. Again, probably mistaken in his mind for his own physical strength. Do you remember the verse in 2 Nephi 26 that talks about Satan leading people away? It says that he leadeth them by the neck with a flaxen cord until he bindeth them with his strong cords forever. I think there's an interesting oh, irony there that Satan starts with something so small and simple, something so easy to break out of, but just keep winding it and weaving it around you. And pretty soon that flaxen cord becomes a strong one. Samson, that's exactly what's happening to you. We're watching it unfold. It was just flax and you broke out easy, but the Philistines are still weaving away. By the end of chapter 15, in verse 18, 
Samson was sore athirst. He called on the Lord. Huh. This seems to be the first time he's tapping into that Nazarite vow and trying to address his God directly. But what does he say? He said, Thou hast given this great deliverance into the hand of thy servant. Oh, so far so good. He recognizes that was your strength, not mine. Not mine. Who am I? I'm just thy servant. Oh, maybe this is the turning point for Samson. Well, don't get ahead of yourself. Samson's prayer took a turn here and says, Now shall I die for thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? Ah, oh, darn it. Now you're just, come on, God, come through for me. Uh, give me some water here. So God clave and hollow place that was in the jaw, and there came water thereout. And when he had drunk, his spirit came again, and he revived. Wherefore he called the name thereof En-Hakore, which means the spring of him who calls, which is in Lehi unto this day. Now, take that literally the way the King James translators gave it to us, and that sounds really, really weird. He's, he's tired. He's exhausted. He's just killed a thousand men with his jawbone of a, of a donkey. And as he's thirsty and prays to God for some deliverance, God says, oh, well, Moses hit the rock. You, I'll just kind of, kind of pop the cork on this jawbone. And right out of the jaw, out of this hollow spot, water will, will spew forth. Well, as a God of miracles, I'm fine with him doing it that way. But a better translation, and probably a more accurate one, Lehi means jaw. And so it's not that in this hollow place in the jawbone, but rather there was a little hollow, a little sunken area in Lehi, in jawbone, in this town. And in this little hollow, a spring burst forth. That sounds a little more normal, doesn't it? And what does uh, Samson call it? He calls it En Hakore, the spring of him who called. Uh, that doesn't seem to be just like a, a water faucet coming out of a, of a jawbone, but a spring coming out of the ground, the ground of Lehi. By the way, there are some fascinating archaeological things like Stila 5 from Mexico that, that speak, have a jawbone and tree of life imagery and Lehi. There's some fascinating scholarly articles out there uh, that seem to draw that connection with Lehi and a jawbone uh, in Mesoamerica and so on. But what I'm saying here is, uh, Samson, you're getting closer, but at the same time, you're getting further away. You're still feeling entitled that you can make demands of your parents and now make demands of God. And yes, credit him for part of it, but then like, come on, come through. You came through for me there. Aren't you, why aren't you coming through for me here? Uh, I do like the, the fact he names it, though, the spring of him who calls. I did call upon God. And living water came bubbling forth to help me. And I, I do know of that kind of, of deliverance when when truth or insight or, or help or grace has come bubbling up whenever I've called upon God to. I just hope that Samson is recognizing this dependence on the Lord and becoming humble as a result. Unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be the case once you turn to chapter 16. Here's the famous story of Samson and Delilah. We saw a Philistine woman before, and now here's another one, and we've got some problems here. We actually meet another one in between, 
Okay, verse 1 and 2, Then went Samson to Gaza, yet another Philistine city, and saw there an harlot, and went in unto her. Oh, come on, Samson. At least the first one, you were going to get married. This time, it's just a prostitute, and you're going to go straight in. It was told the Gazites, saying, Samson has come hither. And they compassed him in, and laid wait for him all night at the gate of the city, and were quiet all night, saying, In the morning, when it is day, we shall kill him. Now, another time that Samson is putting himself in harm's way. A vineyard among the Philistines, bound up and delivered to the Philistines, now going to an harlot in a Philistine city, with the army then surrounding him. We've got him right where we want him. But Samson can easily shrug and go, yeah, you got me right where you want me. I can get out of any jam, any bind. Watch this. I'm so used to getting out of negative consequences for dumb decisions that I no longer worry about dumb decisions. They're getting dumber and dumber as we speak. So, verse 3, Samson lay till midnight, arose at midnight, and took the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and went away with them, bar and all, and put them upon his shoulders and carried them up to the top of a hill that is before Hebron. From Gaza to Hebron is like almost 40 miles. So imagine... Oh, I'm trapped. I'm trapped behind the walls of the city and the big city gates and the army outside. Look how scared I am. And Samson rips off the city gate with the posts that were holding it, as heavy and, and massive as those would be, but just hoists them on his shoulder and walks, oh, a marathon and a half to get back to Israelite territory. Oh, I'm impressed again with your physical strength, Samson. But I am under-impressed with your spiritual lack thereof. You keep putting yourself into sticky situations. Verse 4, here's another one, the big one. Finally one that's bigger than he is. It came to pass afterwards that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. Same long-standing weakness. This one's finally going to lead to his ultimate de demise. Verse 5, the lords of the Philistines came up unto her and said unto her, Entice him, see wherein his great strength lieth, and by what means we may prevail against him, that we may bind him to afflict him. And we will give thee every one of us eleven hundred pieces of silver. Sound a lot like that first bribe? We'll give you something. Here's a bribe, then it was a threat. Either way, entice him. Find out the riddle. Here, find out the source of his strength. It's amazing that Satan is always trying to find the chink in our armor. And everyone has different chinks. But what is your weakness? I hope you know it, because I think Satan probably does. Sure enough, Delilah begins asking Samson for his secret. And he makes up a lie. Maybe he learned a little from his last lesson. I shouldn't have told that one Philistine girl. What was her name again? I don't know. She's gone. Um, I shouldn't have told her about the the honey and the, the lion, because, yeah, it came back to bite me. So I got another one that keeps whining and wailing, like, please tell me. And just to get her off my case, fine. He makes up a lie about, well, this is what would really bring me down. I mean, this is my Achilles heel. Now, he lies about it, but then somehow, ironically, the next morning, he wakes up to find himself in the exact situation he had described to Delilah the night before. Now, you'd think, I mean, is this where the dumb jock stereotype comes from? I don't know. But you'd think Samson would have the intelligence to go, 
wait a minute, I told her what my weakness was and I woke up within that exact weakness? I don't know if I should trust this woman anymore. Eh, no big deal. I can trust myself and trust my strength. And so when I wake up in the morning in that exact circumstance, oh, and I forgot to tell you, the room is surrounded by Philistine soldiers ready to jump pounce upon me. And Delilah says, oh, Samson, Samson, the Philistines are here. He gets up and he immediately breaks out of those flaxen cords like it's a piece of cake and defeats the Philistines and everything's fine again. This happens three different times. It's, it's not getting through Samson's thick skull. The first time it was, well, if you tie me up with seven green withs, like oh, branches or, or vines, or it might even be sinews of animals, things that are fresh and strong that way, not brittle. Oh, man, that's just, I just can't break out of those things. And the next morning, oh, I'm in those things, but watch me break out. Second round was, oh, sorry, I, I, I tricked you. Um, the, it was, it's really new ropes. If you buy me with new ropes, then man, it's something about the newness of it all. Old ones, they kind of fall apart. New, just can't do it. And next morning, wow, I'm in new ropes. And he breaks out easy. Third time, he says, well, if you weave my hair into a loom. Oh, we're getting closer now. Something about my hair. She's whittling away at him, just kind of working him down. And now... He, the Nazarite vow does have something to do with his hair. He doesn't tell her the whole truth, but tells her a half-truth. If you weave my hair into a loom, then I have no strength. And sure enough, he wakes up in the morning and, oh, that's the weirdest thing. My hair has been woven into this tapestry. <laughs> it's, it's tied in with this loom. In fact, it says that it, she used a pin to fasten his hair into the loom. And the word for pin there is the same word as nail for jail, which again, nail for tent spikes and tabernacle pegs and nail in a sure place. With jail, it's such beautiful symbolism. Here, it's the reverse. And so sad that what a woman like Jael is using to defeat the enemy, now the enemy is using to try to defeat Samson. Just interesting role reversals here. Well, he breaks out of that one too. I mean, his hair was still there. It was just woven in. And he just gets up and kind of shakes the, lo the loom loose and defeats the Philistines. And, and this time, Delilah is just devastated. And she says to him in verse 15, How canst thou say, I love thee, when thine heart is not with me? Can you just hear the hypocrisy just dripping off her tongue? Love? Well, where's yours? You, your heart's not with me? Well, yeah, his never was. It was just lust. But yours isn't with him. Yours is self-serving as well. She goes on. Thou hast mocked me these three times and hast not told me wherein thy great strength lieth. And it came to pass when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him so that his soul was vexed unto death. Again, that sounds exactly like Potiphar's wife. Hadn't learned his lesson from his first Philistine wife. Then, verse 17, he told her all his heart and said unto her, There hath not come a razor upon mine head, for I have been a Nazarite unto God from my mother's womb. If I be shaven, then my strength will go from me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Those are, I think, my favorite words from Samson, because he finally admits something that might be even more than he realizes himself. What is it that makes you different, Samson? 
Not your hooking frame, not your incredible physical strength. It's the covenant that your parents raised you to keep. And even though you seem to be breaking parts of that covenant left and right, a vineyard here and a harlot there, and another Nazarite vow is not to be around dead people. Samson, you're always around dead people, uh, and they're dead because of you. Um, what are we doing here? Well, on this one, though, at least he never cut his hair. At least there was the outward visibility of someone that's trying to live a different life, even though he wasn't living it very differently. But the way he said it there, it's that that makes me different. Without that, then I'm weak, and then I'm like any other man. Our strength comes from our spirituality. It comes from our connection to God. Our, our power, our difference, comes in our connection to Christ. And that is a covenant connection. Without it, it's amazing to watch the arm of flesh shrivel before your eyes. Because it was never your strength to begin with. It was always God's. Israel, are you learning that through your rounds of the pride cycle? Samson? Are you learning that through yours? Well, you're about to. Because sure enough, the next morning, like clockwork, like it's been done already three times, he wakes up with his hair shaved off. Again, surrounded by the soldiers. How could you not see this coming, Samson? And in verse 20, he awoke out of his sleep and said, I will go out, notice this phrase, as at other times before, and shake myself. And he wist not that the Lord was departed from him. You see that his prior experiences had lulled him into a false sense of security. Remember, it was Jael with her lullaby. Here's some more milk, Sisera. Here's a, a mantle, a cover. Let me sing you to sleep. And then I'll take you down with this nail. Re reverse the rolls. And now it's Delilah lulling Samson to sleep spiritually. In fact, it's not just Delilah. It's Samson himself that has been lulling himself into this false sense of security. Because I've gotten out of every jam I've put myself in. Lion, army, you name it. I, I can get out. Until you can't. And even that phrase, he wist not that the Lord was departed, that one is really haunting he didn't even know the Spirit was gone. Which makes me wonder, did you ever really know when it was with you? I think sometimes we take for granted the presence of the Holy Ghost, or we're so used to it, at least on a, a, a lower level, that come or go, we can't, even, we can't even tell. We don't recognize that it's with us, helping us, guiding us, empowering us. How do you think you got through all these things in the past? The Spirit of the God came mightily upon you. No, you just thought it was yourself. And now that it's gone, you still think you still have yourself. And so I'm good. I worry about our inability to recognize the Holy Ghost when it's here or when it's not. And I hope we can grow sufficiently sensitive to the Spirit to be able to tell as it increases or decreases in intensity. For Samson, it was all off. Makes me wonder if Samson really had awakened out of his sleep after all. To me, it seems like he's been spiritually asleep for a long, long time.
Then you get to verse 21. The Philistines took him and put out his eyes. Oh, first thing they do, remove your ability to see. Loss of vision. Then they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with fetters of brass. And he did grind in the prison house. Then these leaders gather Philistines from all over into the house of their god. The Philistine god is named Dagon. And they bring into this temple of Dagon and pack the place with worshipers, if you want to call it that. Revelers is a better word for it. Because they're going to come and bring out Samson for sport so they can make fun of him. They can mock him. They can laugh at him. I mean, he's blind. Maybe they're going to use him as a human pinata and people can start hitting him or beating him or doing whatever they want to it to him because he doesn't even know where the blows are coming from. And he's bound down. He's in chains. So there's nothing he can do to really fight back anyway. Now, think about this. Verse 25 adds that last element of the mockery. It says, It came to pass when their hearts were merry that they said, Call for Samson that he may make a sport And they called for Samson out of the prison house, and he made them sport, and they set him between the pillars. Again, with no ability to see and no freedom to fight, they had Samson right where they wanted him. They could mock him, reduce him down to the absurd. (laughs) Were we really afraid of this guy? Look at him. He's nothing. And what did it all come from? A loss of vision. There's the eyes. A loss of agency, there's the chains. A loss of identity, (laughs) who's this guy? Israelite, deliverer, whatever. And a loss of dignity, that we can mock and make sport of you. It was never a game when we were fighting, but it's a game to us now. Now, I don't know of a better visual aid than Samson. For the vision that Enoch had of the earth in its darkened state. I mentioned this back in Moses 7, but here we see it in living color. Since we still have eyes to see, hopefully, unlike Samson did. Here's the verse, Moses 7, 26. And he, Enoch, beheld Satan. And he had a great chain in his hand, and it veiled the whole face of the earth with darkness. And he looked up and laughed, and his angels rejoiced. Now do you see Samson as the personification of that? Satan had a great chain in his hand. There's Samson in his fetters of brass. He used it to veil the whole face of the earth with darkness. There's Samson with his eyes put out. And then the devil looks and laughs while his angels rejoice. There's the the Philistine multitudes packing the temple of their false god, mocking their fallen enemy. The one with the greatest potential to have made a difference in Israel, but one who fell painfully short of all that. What does it boil down to? Satan seeks to bind and blind. It's the nature of sin. It's the nature of addiction. Addiction, more than anything, is the binding side. But to blind us, to get us in there, to try to remove from us the possibility of seeing the light of the Lord. Oh, this is exactly what's happening in our day. Enoch's vision, his visions were of the latter days, and it's happening with too many of, of people in the church with incredible potential 
to build the kingdom and deliver Israel. Instead, bind, blind, laugh, mock, lost vision, lost agency, lost dignity, lost identity. Do we know who we are? My fellow Samsons, we're children of promise. We're miracle people that God has tried to prepare to make a difference. I pray we can make it. Well, one other detail here before we end the story of Samson. In verse 22, the hair of his head began to grow again after he was shaven. It's just starting to come through a little stubble there on the scalp. But to me, as we'll see in the aftermath, that's the, his strength is beginning to return. Now here we have to take the metaphor and realize that if we are willing to let our covenants begin to grow again, to grow some faith, even if it's still really short, but spiritual strength will come right along with it. We can regain spiritual strength we have lost. We can trust in the atonement of Jesus Christ. That's what it's there for. So even if we find ourselves trapped in prison, prisons of our own making, let your hair grow back. Let your faith regrow and, and spiritual strength will come flowing back into you. God has not given up on you yet, Samson. But what happens? He asks the boy who led him from prison out into Dagon's temple, put my hands upon the pillars just so I can rest. Well, it's not quite rest that he had in mind. But as he then feels the pillars between his, at his hands and begins to feel the strength of God begin to course through him once again, what happens? Verse 28, Samson called unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember me, I pray thee. I'm finally remembering you. Strengthen me, I pray thee, only this once, O God. He could have had that strength all along. That I may be at once avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. And then he begins pushing upon these pillars. Now again, God is going to get some good out of this in terms of trying to deliver Israel from the Philistines. Because this temple, packed with people, in fact, 3,000 more upon its roof, thousands and thousands of Philistines were there. The important ones, the leaders. Samson, you could have been defending Israel against them through your entire life. You had the strength to do it. But here Samson calls upon that strength for one final act, and it's one of self-sacrifice. In verse 30, he said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed himself with all his might, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people that were therein. So the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his life. When I read that, I see in Samson so much potential. And like I said, it was his life that God was trying to consecrate. It was his life, not his death. This is such a sad and painful end of a sad and painful story filled with potential that went unmet because of covenants that went unkept. There's an interesting verse in 3 Nephi 6. In these final years before the destruction of the wicked and the coming of Christ, where it says, 
that there was nothing in all the land to hinder the people from prospering continually, except they should fall into transgression. And I don't know a better verse to describe Samson. The, the judge with the greatest potential of all. If his spiritual strength had only matched his physical strength, the history of Israel could have been different. The only thing that kept it was that he fell into transgression. And worst of all, kept falling into it because he thought he could keep getting his way out. May we be wiser than Samson, stronger than he. As far as this week's Come Follow Me, that's where it ends. I've added all kinds of other chapters that, that didn't make the cut as far as the curriculum is concerned. But as we've covered everything, we still have a few more chapters if we really want to cover the, the end of the book. This will do fairly quickly, but these are hard chapters. Uh, they're morbid. They're graphic. Uh, welcome to ancient Israel, especially at a time when people are not turning to God. We're going to see... If Samson was our biggest chance to finally emerge from the pride cycle and then this tragic demise of his own, we're kind of left there. And in the remaining chapters of Judges, we see what life devolves into when you stay on the bottom end, the broken side of the pride cycle. So in a, if you'll bear with me for a few more minutes, chapters 17 through 21 basically tell two sad stories uh, that that happen when, you're at, when you bottom out in the pride cycle. Chapter 17 has to do with a man named Micah. He's an Ephraimite. Uh, Micah, by the way, is the shortened form of the name Michael. And Michael, Michael, means one who is like God. So Micah, you're supposed to be good. Your name would suggest that. You're supposed to be like God. Unfortunately, his likeness to God is not a spiritual similarity. It's a tragic counterfeit. This is the verse that points it out to us. Judges 17.5. The man Micah had an house of gods. These are false gods. These are graven images. He made an ephod. There's the false robes of an apostate priesthood. And teraphim, those are idols, graven images, household gods, and consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. Now remember, Micah was from the tribe of Ephraim. There's no priesthood there. He's not a Levite. So what's Micah doing? In some ways, it's a twisted play on his name. Not one who's truly trying to become like God, but one who's trying to fake his way into appearing that he's like one. I got gods. I got priesthood. I've got holy priesthood robes and garments. I'm good. No, you're not. Sound, again, like a personification of Israel? Are you falling prey to falsehood? In verse 6, In those days there was no king in Israel. But every man did that which was right in his own eyes. The first phrase comes up, I think, four times in the book of Judges. No king, certainly no king of kings at the helm. No, they've banished that monarch. And even lesser leaders, even good judges, are just coming and going as we revolve around the stage. And that second phrase, without a king to tell you what is right, Without an eternal sovereign establishing an eternal standard, what are you left with? Eh, everyone does what's right in his own eyes. That's moral relativism. And welcome to the 21st century. We are living in the days of the judges. 
and no one judges based on true judgment. Uh, I shouldn't say no one. We have prophets and apostles. We have wise men and women that are doing their very best to hold to standards that have been set by God and by good people throughout history. I'm just afraid that the pendulum is swinging so far in the direction of non-traditionalism and anti-institutionalism and radical individualism, even to the point of narcissism, that no wonder relativism is what comes as a result. You do you is what we hear these days. And, and everyone's doing themselves instead of trying to become like God. It's the false Micah, exactly what's happening. They're not becoming like the true God. They're becoming a God unto themselves and doing whatever seems right to them. And how would Micah respond if we accused him of all that? What are you talking about? I'm not doing anything wrong. Who says I can't have my own priest? I mean, Ephraimites are just as good as Levites. In fact, we're the birthright tribe. We probably should have had a priest all along. Uh, you have no right to tell me what I can or cannot do. There's, oh, careful here, Micah. What ends up happening then is there's a young Levite, ooh, actually who is from the priesthood tribe, and he's from Bethlehem in Judah. He's traveling through the area. He passes by Micah's house, and, and Micah is like, whoa, 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 you're actually a real Levite? Hmm. I wonder if there's something down deep within Micah that realizes, I'm just a total fake. I'm a total fraud. I'm an Ephraimite, and so is my son. And so what's this pseudo-priest? Here's priest craft. In fact, oh, that gives me an idea. Let's really do some real priest craft to get a real priest. Perfect. If, hey, uh, uh, Levite, what are you doing? You're just passing through? You want to stick around? Because I'll tell you what, I will pay you handsomely if you'll be my little household priest. I had one, but it's, it's kind of a cheap imitation. And you're kind of the real thing. So would you come? And the Levites like, well, sure, why not? You know, there's no king, there's no set standard, and we can do whatever we want. Um, you want me? I want some money. I don't get paid a whole lot working at the tabernacle, you know. So working for you sounds, sounds like a good deal. So this is a win-win. Well, I would say, God would say it's a lose-lose. And talk about priestcraft by definition. Your priesthood now becomes your craft. There's your priestcraft. And, and Micah is just giving kind of a token nod to, what, to the Lord's way. At least I have a Levite now. Okay, uh, Good enough? Can we compromise? Well, keep reading. Chapter 18. Now we're going to meet some Danites, and we're still going to deal with priestcraft and some additional idolatry. Verse 1 starts with a phrase that should start standing out to us. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Again, no uh, social standard, no absolute truth. In those days, the tribe of the Danites sought them an inheritance to dwell in, for unto that day all their inheritance had not fallen unto them among the tribes of Israel. So that part still some of those oh, tasks that have been left undone. You haven't conquered all your territory. And now Danites are kind of out, ready to conquer some more. So a few of the men of Dan go in search of additional land to settle. They end up passing through that same area the Levite had a while before. They swing by the house of Micah. And wait, you got your own Levite? That's so cool. Uh, I didn't know you could do that. Um, can you like have him bless us? 
It's actually starting to sound like Balak and Balaam, right? Can I hire him to bless me at somebody else's expense? Well, sure, I, I guess. That's fine. I mean, I, I wasn't using him tonight. And so the Danites get a blessing from Micah's Levite. And uh, then they m- march on and uh, end up wanting to take on this this. And they find a, a city thinking, oh, this is a great land of inheritance. Let's take that on. But then they realize, actually, if a blessing from a Levite was good, I'll bet the presence of a Levite would be even better. So instead of just, oh, hiring him, let's like really take him on board. And instead of just like paying for a blessing, let's go for like full-time employment. What do you say? So they approach the Levite and say in verse 19, go with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for thee to be a priest unto the house of one man, this is lowly Micah, or that thou be a priest unto a tribe and a family in Israel? I mean, if priestcraft pays, then we're offering you an incredible raise. Come work for us. And the Levite's like, sweet, I'm getting promoted? Bring it on. Verse 20, the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the teraphim and the graven image and went in the midst of the people. Now, wait a minute, those didn't belong to you. Those were all Micah's stuff. I mean, yeah, counterfeits all and fakes all, but, well, I'm a fake too. I'm a, kind of a counterfeit, well, but sort of true. I'm a Levite after all. Uh, but these, all these trappings, I, I have priesthood, uh, priestcraft, close enough. I want the trappings of all of this stuff too. So I'm going to bring all these kind of lucky charms and, and go with you. Well, they're on the march now to take over this city. And then Micah founds, finds out, I was like, wait, wait, where's my Levite? Wait, where's my ephod and where's my graven images and my household gods and what happened? And so he comes rushing out with his neighbors and friends and asks and confronts the Danites and like, what are you doing with my, my, my holy counterfeits? And they're like, well, to the victor go the spoils. Might makes right and we outnumber you. Do you really want to take us on to try to get back your priest? And Mike is all, when you put it that way, I think I'm good. I guess I could probably always make some more stuff and hire a new counterfeit. Maybe my son wants to be priest again. I don't know. And so Micah and his people go away. To me, it's interesting to see these two parties, Micah versus the Danites, neither one of whom has any authority for this. Neither one of whom has any real religion, so to speak. But they want religion with them. They want the, the seal of approval. They, at least they want that stamp to, to rubber stamp whatever it was that they wanted without it. And that's so fascinating. There's actually an interesting book out there called The Myth of Religious Violence. And so often religions are, are blamed for the violence throughout world history. Now they're partially to blame. But in this book, The Myth of Religious Violence, the, the scholar who writes it points out, A, it's unfair to chalk it up to religious motives at a time throughout most of human history when you didn't separate out political, economic, religious identities. It's just life, and this is how it is. And the second issue is, was religion really the motivating factor? Or were, were the goals being pursued based on other issues, but then religion was kind of oh, hired to provide some added motivation? Uh, I mean, the Nazis weren't very Christian, to put it that way. But they sure wanted some th- to pressure the Christian churches into rubber-stamping 
what they were trying to accomplish. Uh, to me, it's interesting, again, in this, in this chapter to see political parties, so to speak, uh, Danites versus Micah, each wanting to enlist the aid of religion, even when it's false. We don't care about that. If you can add some kind of sense of divine authority, then people will do incredible things, uh, believing that, that God is behind them or with them. And that's what's happening here. But since the Danites outnumbered Micah and his friends, they took religion in hand, marched down to destroy this city, which they do. But the way it's described is really fascinating. I know many of you, and myself as, as well, wrestle with the violence of Joshua and Judges in terms of the conquest of Canaan. And, and the massacres of cities and destroying everything, man, women, children, animals, you name it, it's hard. Some have wondered, why couldn't God have just done it in terms of a natural disaster or something? Let the walls come a-tumbling down and destroy everything that way and, and leave it in His hands, kind of a, another flood. But to make the Israelites do it themselves? This is horrible. Well, remember, it was capital crimes with capital punishment. Remember, it was God waiting for the iniquity of the Amorites to be fully, to be full. Remember 1 Nephi 17, Nephi's promise, if they had been righteous, they would not have been driven out of the land. Again, remember how Judges co complicates things and helps you see it didn't seem to be the massacres like we saw in Judges, or in Joshua, because there seemed to be so many Canaanites still all around. Uh, but one other thing to think about here, was there a right way versus a wrong way to pursue the conquest of Canaan? Uh, even in, in terms of military ethics, there's something called just war theory. We studied it uh, in DNC 98 and 101 last year. Uh, what does it mean to go back and redeem Zion? There's just war theory in terms of the conquest of Canaan in Joshua and Judges. And what's interesting about the Danites going off, off to kind of seek additional territory and to hire priestcraft to back them up, this is an example of doing it in the wrong way. And there's, it, there's a different feel the way the conquest of this city is described versus what you saw in, jo in Jericho or Ai or these other kinds of places. Read it in, in chapter 18, verse 27 and 28. And they took the things which Micah had made, and the priest which he had, and came unto Laish, unto a people, here's the description, that were at quiet and secure. And they smote them with the edge of the sword and burnt the city with fire. And there was no deliverer, because it was far from Zidon. They were Zidonians living in that part of Canaan. And they had no business with any man. In other words, no leagues, no alliances, no one that could come to their rescue. This does not sound like some kind of rejoicing. The enemy was wicked and, and were driven out and the land spewed them out because of their iniquity. No, this sounds like the Danites are in the wrong. These poor Zidonians, they were quiet. They were secure. And you came marching in with no mercy. No, there was no deliverer. There was no man to help them. This really does... The way this battle is described compared to the, the way the battles are described throughout Joshua and Judges is really different. Uh, and to me, there's just something here about do not, do not mistake true justice 
for false vengeance. Something's wrong here. Don't mistake righteous indignation for mere anger and venting that anger on someone else. Don't mistake priesthood for priestcraft, certainly. And please don't mistake true religion for false religion. This is an unauthorized show of force. This is a battle that God does not sanction. And it comes across in the book of Judges with a different feel and a different description. Keep that in mind. Finally, chapter th- or verse 30 and 31. The children of Dan, well, they're in their new territory. Okay, now let's try to turn things in the right way, right? Nope, they didn't. The children of Dan set up the graven image, the fake thing that they'd stolen from from uh, Micah. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, so again, not a Levite by any stretch of the imagination, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. They set up Micah's graven image, which he made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. The way the chapter ends there is so important. This whole time you've been doing this, The tabernacle is here in the lands of Israel. There are true Levites. You don't have to hire a Levite, let alone fake Ephraimites or fake Manassehites to become your false priests or false prophets. It's all falsehood. It's all fake. They draw near me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And we are watching Israel apostatize before our eyes. It's a tragic downfall in the pride cycle, especially tragic when you realize the house of God is there in Shiloh. There there are true prophets and priests and Levites, and and we're going to see some of them very soon when we get to Samuel. Well, one last story, and this is a horrible one. So if you want to end the, the lesson now, you're more than welcome to. Although there are a few final minutes I think are worth tuning into. Judges 19, 20, and 21 is a story of a Levite's concubine. And it is a story of immorality. It's a story of rape. It's a story of violence and murder and retribution. It's a brutal story, but it teaches a powerful lesson on how wrong those things are and how right truth and virtue and justice and chastity are and the price that must be paid to preserve those things. That's why I do think these chapters are worth studying. So stomach this. Let's get through it. Chapter 19, verse 1. It came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel, same phrase again, that there was a certain Levite sojourning on the side of Mount Ephraim who took to him a concubine out of Bethlehem, Judah. Verse 2, his concubine played the whore against him and went away from him unto her father's house to Bethlehem, Judah, and was there four whole months. So playing the whore, here's this covenant infidelity. Verse 3, her husband arose and went after her to speak friendly unto her, despite of what she'd done, to bring her again in spite of her betrayal having his servant with him and a couple of asses, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the father of the damsel saw him, he rejoiced to meet him. Now, this seems to be a good Levite and a good marriage. 
I mean, the father-in-law is, is all for it. And yet this woman has betrayed that trust and has played the harlot. Now, when she played the whore, we've seen that word before in terms of Israel went a whoring after other gods. And we'll see it again in Jeremiah and Amos and elsewhere in Scripture, where, like I said, adultery becomes the symbol for idolatry. And either way, you are being unfaithful. Unfaithful to your spouse, like this woman was to her Levite husband, or unfaithful to the God that you are covenantally bound to, as in the case of Israel. So here this becomes a great metaphor if Le the Levite is the type of Christ and his, his wife, this who played the whore, is the type of Israel. We'll see this played out really uh, clearly in the book of Hosea near the end of the year. Uh, but this is almost a preview of that same kind of lesson. Now, the Levite, I'll take you back. I'll forgive you if you'll just come home with me. And they stay there in the father's house. The father is wanting to protect them and preserve the marriage. He's all for it. He's all behind it. The Levite and his wife end up staying there with the father for several days. But then it's time to go home, and he's going to go home and bring his wife, his concubine, with him. On the way home, he's, they've now left the father's house, and they're in this wicked world trying to navigate their way back to their own home. And unfortunately, what happens as they pass through the land inheritance of the tribe of Benjamin, they stop for the night in a town called Gibeah. And this is where the horrible things take place. First, the people of Gibeah show absolutely no hospitality. Remember with Abraham and the three holy servants, remember with Lot and the three holy men, hospitality was key. And one of the reasons that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed beyond sexual sin, which we'll see here, was also a lack of hospitality on their part, providing for people in need. Same thing's happening here. So this is Sodom and Gomorrah all over again. The fact that a city in Benjamin, in the house of Israel, had succumbed, lowered themselves to that level? Are you kidding? Well, that's what's happened. No hospitality. Finally, there's an old man in town. He happens to be from the tribe of Ephraim. He's not even a Benjamite. And he's not from here, but he's in town working. And he sees this man and his wife and says, no one's letting you in? No room in the inn? Why don't you come and stay with me? And so finally, an out, a fellow outsider being kind to other outsiders. Then in verse 22, the men of the city, certain sons of Belial, which we would say like a son of perdition, just someone just uh, as bad as they get, they beset the house round about and beat at the door and spake to the master of the house, the old man, saying, bring forth the man that came into thine house that we may know him. Now here it becomes as obvious as it can get that we are channeling the story of Lot in Sodom. And here this city of Israel has become sunk to that level. And so threatening immorality, what happens? Well, again, like Lot, but unlike the Joseph Smith translation, uh, in the JST of, of Genesis 19, remember this, Lot goes out and says, don't well, in the King James, Lot goes out and says, don't mess with the men, have my daughters and you can abuse them instead. That's horrible. The Joseph Smith translation corrects that. Lot was a better man than that. He was worth saving from Sodom. He says, don't touch the men. Don't touch my daughters. Leave everyone alone. Do not do this wickedness. Well, 
it's an echo of that story, but without the JST providing a glimpse at someone's righteousness. Instead, this old Ephraimite that at least had the kindness to be hospitable to this Levite man goes and faces the, the wicked men of Gibeah that are threatening the Levite, and he says, no, take his concubine instead and do what you will with her. This is horrible. This is, again, a full objectification of women. Uh, I'm not... Please don't think that this is a story about what uh, the way things are supposed to be. It isn't. It's a story about the way things get when people reject the king of kings and do whatever they feel is right in their own eyes. It's what happens when you bottom out in the pride cycle. That's what these last few stories, or this last story in these final chapters is about. And so out goes the Levite concubine, and, and the men of Gibeah do unspeakable things to her. It's revolting as sexual violence and gang rape takes place until she is at the point of death by the time the, day, the next day dawns. They leave her for dead, and yet she crawls her way back to the door, just to the threshold of the house, and collapses there and dies. Her virtue has been taken. Her life has been taken. No, she was not perfect. She had played the harlot against her husband. But no one deserves to be victimized like that. Honestly, it leaves me sick to my stomach reading this chapter, thinking, has Israelite society really come to that? Has it collapsed to that level? In some ways, this is the, the equivalent of Moroni 9, the end of the Book of Mormon, when, yes, Nephite civilization is no longer civilized at all. You remember what Mormon says to his son in Moroni 9, verse 11 through 14? Oh, my beloved son, how can a people like this that are without civilization, and only a few years have passed away, and they were a civil and a delightsome people. Yeah, that's how fast the pride cycle can go. But, oh, my son, how can a people like this, whose delight is in so much abomination, how can we expect that God will stay his hand in judgment against us. Oh yes, God is merciful, but God is just. And Mormon feared that justice. He knew it was coming. And Israel, prepare yourself for justice being meted out over the horrible injustice that has just been perpetrated in Gibeah. The Levite is horrified. He sees, as he's leaving the house, this concubine on the doorstep thinks she's asleep, tries to rouse her, realizes she's dead, picks up her body, lays it upon his animal, and comes back home, and then does something that is equally revolting by modern standards. He takes the corpse of his concubine and cuts it into 12 pieces. Remember in Genesis 15 when Abraham cut these pieces pieces of animal and separated them side by side to make the confines of covenant. Remember, cut is the word that's used for covenant. You cut a deal, you cut a covenant, we would say. Well, he takes this concubine, cuts her into 12 pieces, and then sends a piece to each tribe of Israel. 
So imagine being the leader of a tribe and you receive this message from a, a Levite you've never met and in it is the most horrific offering you've ever seen. And in it is this explanation of what has happened within the kingdom of Israel, among us, among God's so-called chosen people. Have we really sunk to this level? He writes them this, verse 30, It was so that all that saw it said, There was no such deed done nor seen from the day that the children of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt unto this day. I've never seen anything like this. This is absolutely horrific. And then this counsel, consider of it, take advice, and speak your minds. He is forcing Israel to see what they've become. And they're going to have to think about it. They're going to have to wrestle with this. They're going to have to figure it out together. Is there a solution here? What are we going to do to change our society once we have been fully awakened to the depravity that we have allowed to enter in. That's where Judges 20 comes in. Because what they decide to do, based on this horrific act that has taken place within their collective border, verse 1, then all the children of Israel went out. And the congregation was gathered together as one man, from Dan, northern edge, even to Beersheba, southern edge. Makes you wonder, what would it take to unite an entire people in our day? That is what happened on 9-11. As the entire American nation got behind an outrage that went beyond anything they'd ever imagined. That's what's happening here. What are you going to do about this? How long will your indignation last? What kind of sacrifices are you willing to make to right these wrongs? Because sadly, in some quarters, our post-9-11 zeal to turn to God didn't last that long. What's going to happen here? Well, 400,000 soldiers assemble. They're serious about this. They descend upon the people of Gibeah. In verse 8, all the people arose as one man saying, We will not any of us go to his tent, neither will we any of us turn unto his house. In verse 11, So all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, knit together as one man. Talk about galvanizing the community, having all of society up in arms. I can't believe we have allowed things to deteriorate to the point that this is even possible, even thinkable. The tribes then tell the leaders of Benjamin, This happened in your tribe in the city of Gibeah, you find the guilty parties and send them out so they can, ex so they can pun be punished with capital punishment for their capital crimes. Justice demands that. So send them out. But I don't know if this was misplaced mercy on their side or misplaced loyalty, perhaps. The leaders of the tribe of Benjamin say, no, we won't do that. These are Benjamites, and we will back them up. This is a city in our territory. Go back to your own. We will not extradite them. That's going to prove tragic. Like I said, misplaced loyalties. They felt, I'm a Benjamite first and an Israelite second. Oh, no, you're not. Reverse that. It reminds me, sadly, of Robert E. Lee, who had the greatest potential to solve the Civil War militarily. 
And he was Abraham Lincoln's first choice for commanding general. But what did Lee say? It was a hard decision for him. But when all was said and done, he said, I'm a Virginian first and an American second. We cannot lean into lesser loyalties. President Nelson just taught that to all the young adults of the church. You have all kinds of identities. Make sure you keep the right ones first. Prioritize those ones. And the men of Benjamin put them in the wrong order and thought that a lesser loyalty should trump the ultimate, which was loyalty to the Lord. So what happens? A battle commences between 400,000 Israelite soldiers on the one hand and 26,700 men in the tribe of Benjamin. It was a smaller tribe, but they were a strong one. In fact, 700 out of those 26,700 were left-handed. We saw that with Ehud. There's a unique gift that's going to give them an, a leg up in the battle. And it says that they were so skilled when it came to the, the sling. We're going to see that later in the story of David and Goliath. But so skilled that they could sling stones at an hair breadth and not miss. Now, I don't care how skilled you are. Do you have any idea how outnumbered you are? You've ticked off the entire house of Israel. Just, and, and to do what? To defend the indefensible? Do you have no conscience in terms of what has been done in your territory? Well, they decided to fight despite it. And ironically, they won the first round of the battle. And the second round of the battle. And it's like, wait a minute, they're, they're in the wrong. What, what's going on here? And I, part of me, I think, is, is this God allowing Israel in its entirety to decide how serious are you about righting these wrongs? What sacrifices of self will you make to truly defend righteous standards? I'm not going to make this an easy victory. You, you keep falling back into problems when things come easily. So round one of the battle... 22,000 Israelites are killed. In verse 23, the children of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until even and asked counsel of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up again to battle against the children of Benjamin, my brother? And the Lord said, Go up against him. You see what else is on their mind? This is a fellow tribe of Israel. Do we really fight against them? This is a civil war within the house of Israel, and I know it's to defend virtue and, and chastity and right. Is it worth this? And God's answer was yes. Is it really worth taking, taking on the, the Benjamites and having them suffer? Yes. Is it really worth... I hate to do the math here, God, but there was one victim of the Gibeites there's now been 22,000 victims among the people that are trying to avenge that loss. And God says, go forward. Okay, round two of the battle. We're surely going to win this time. No, they lost. And 18,000 Israelites are killed. The, the death toll among the righteous, well, more righteous, they've still got issues too, I'm sure, is now at 40,000 and again, they're rethinking, what are we doing here? 26 and 27. Then all the children of Israel and all the people went up and came unto the house of God 
and wept and sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until even and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the children of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the children of Benjamin, my brother, or shall I cease? It's like, have we paid enough to show how serious we are? And the Lord said, No, not yet. Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into thine hand. Defending chastity, administering justice, doing right by a single innocent victim, is it worth what you're paying? Yes. It's worth losses. It's worth setbacks to try to preserve the importance of covenant and virtue. I'm not saying we take up arms. That's, we live in a different day. But I am saying we defend the family. I am saying we, we live the law of charity but we defend the law of chastity. And that's what Israel is being asked to do. And they do it. Round three of the battle finally comes, and they finally win. In verse 35, the Lord smote Benjamin before Israel. And the children of Israel destroyed of the Benjamites that day twenty and five thousand and a hundred men. All these drew the sword. And then they burned the city of Gibeah to the ground. Oh, the burnt offering. That was the wickedness of Jericho, burned to the ground. Now the wickedness of their own city, Gibeah, burned to the ground as well. And 65,000 plus that died in the aftermath of an unspeakable deed that was trying to be excused or ignored when instead it had to be atoned for. The aftermath of the war is then where the book of Judges ends, in chapter 21. The other tribes swear that I will never allow any of our daughters to marry a man of Benjamin. Now, I can see where they're coming from, but there's still this sense of Benjamin's our brother. They've just lost 25,000 men. I don't know how many women and children have been casualties of war. But now no other daughters can marry into the tribe of Benjamin. What are we going to do about the future of Benjamin? That is a house, a tribe of Israel. That is our brother. And now they start questioning that. What do we do for them? I am grateful that they're at least thinking of, they're, they've atoned for Benjamin's past. Now they're trying to provide for Benjamin's future. In verse 2, the people came to the house of God. Again, a great place to go and seek divine direction. They abode there till even before God and lifted up their voices and wept sore and said, O Lord God of Israel, why is this come to pass in Israel that there should be today one tribe lacking in Israel? I mean, they knew justice had to be administered, but they also regretted that such consequences had to come. And how do we make things better moving forward? How can we really rehabilitate people who have justly been punished, but hopefully now are ready to move forward? Now, this is what they decide to do. And I don't agree with all of it, and you don't have to either. But verse 6, the children of Israel repented them for Benjamin, their brother, 
and said, There is one tribe cut off from Israel this day. How shall we do for wives for them that remain? Seeing we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them of our daughters to wives. When it says that it repented them, it's just, again, a matter of pity and sorrow. We knew we had to do it. Uh, justice had to be administered. I'm just sad it had to go that way. And that's actually good justice. Again, when you're motivated by righteous indignation instead of mere anger. When you're not venting your frustration. When this does, it really does hurt me as much as it hurts you. Well, regretting that they had to punish the guilty, but trying to figure out how do we help replenish the population of Benjamin when we already promised we'd never let our daughters marry their sons. Well, what do we do? The rest of the chapter describes the ways that they ensured the, the survivability, the perpetuation of the tribe of Benjamin. We can't let them disappear from the tribes, and so what are we going to do? And this is the part I don't agree with, and you don't have to either. First one, we're going to do this. There was a city that wouldn't join Israel in the battle against the Benjamites. Uh, this is kind of Curse of Morose 2.0, and it was a curse. You didn't come when called upon. Did you not care about the covenant? Are you not willing to defend what is right? Because that makes you party to the problem. That puts you on their side. And we fought and destroyed them. And so as punishment, we are going to fight and destroy you. And they do. They destroy that other city in Israel except for all of the women that have never been married. Then they take those women and bring them to the Benjamites and say, now you can have wives to marry from this group. I didn't say I like this. I didn't say I agree. Uh, I think they have a good goal. But how do we reach that? Uh, they've foreclosed some better possibilities already. Maybe that was a rash vow on their part. And now they're trying to fix things as best they can, kind of cobbling together some kind of solution. The other one is perhaps even worse. Uh, they suggest that, well, uh, every year at, at the feasts, people will come up to, to Shiloh. And uh, maybe on the way, if you see any women that are kind of off on their own, they describe them as people that are kind of dancing and rejoicing over these yearly festivals. Then how's this for a solution? Verse 20 and 21. Go and lie in wait in the vineyards and see, and behold, if the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in dances. Then come ye out of the vineyards and catch you every man his wife of the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. Now that's horrible. Uh, that sounds a lot like the wicked priests of King Noah when they abandoned their own families and then they're hiding out in the, in the wilderness. And when they see the daughters of the Lamanites out dancing, they go and kidnap them and take them wives to themselves. Actually makes me wonder if that was the only thing that the wicked priests of Noah remembered from their brass plates scripture study. Like, oh, that's how the Benjamites did it. Maybe that's how we can do it too. I think that's wrong on both occasions. But remember, this is not God commanding them to do that. You don't have to justify what you see at the end of, of Judges. In fact, I have a feeling that it's meant to work on our heart and give us that gut punch so that it tells us this is not to be justified. That there were things going on at the end of the book of Judges when things had gotten down to a point in the absence of prophets, in the absence of righteous judges, there's no, none during this time, 
when society has devolved to a level of such depravity that both problems and even solutions all seem wrong. And my biggest fear is, is that where we're allowing society to go in our day? Or are we willing to stand up? Are we willing to try to reverse the pride cycle? To turn to God in our moments of destruction and really repent and then hold to the covenant so that our prosperity never need fall back into depravity. You see the way it all ends? Look at verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. It's the fourth time that's been said in this book. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. We've seen that several times too. If nothing else, allow the book of Judges to be a cautionary tale of the dangers of moral relativism. The dangers of the pride cycle, again, but also the dangers of just forgetting God and going on to do whatever you think is right in your own eyes. We need better eyes than that. We need an all-seeing one. One that will lift us up to become more like him. Micah's and Michael's in the real way. I'll close with this, going back to our star story, which is Samson. And if he's the best personification of the book of Judges, if he's the best personification of Israel in terms of its potential, but then sadly in terms of its actual and the distance between them, one word that kept coming up, I didn't point this out because I wanted to save it, but if you go through the story of Samson, Judges 14, 15, 16, Whenever it talks about directions that Samson is going, guess what word comes up most often? The word down. In 14.1, Samson went down to Timnath. 14.5, then went Samson down. 14.7, and he went down. 14.19, he went down to Ashkelon. 15.8, he went down. 16.21, the Philistines brought him down to Gaza. And finally, after his death, 1631. Then his brethren and all the house of his father came down and took him and brought him up and buried him. The story of Samson seemed to be one unending descent into a lower level of living, far beneath his privileges, far below his lofty potential. And we cannot allow that to happen. A great statement from President Gordon B. Hinckley. One of the great tragedies we witness almost daily is the tragedy of men of high aim and low achievement. Sound like Samson? Sound like Israel during this period? President Hinckley said, their motives are noble. Their proclaimed ambition is praiseworthy. Their capacity is great. But their discipline is weak. They succumb to indolence. Appetite robs them of will. And that to me is the cautionary tale of the book of Judges. That to me is the book of Judges call to repentance for each of us. A call to humility and maintaining that humility. I'll end where I began. As I've sat here for the last few hours, or you as you've hopefully broken this up and made it through this week of scripture study, 
Are you, is your head spinning? Are you reeling from their lack of repentance? Are you a little frustrated with Israel's repeated succumbing to sin and falling into pride? And perhaps are you a little frustrated with God and his ever-present willingness to give them second chances? Well, hold to the first frustration, but not to the second. And allow the Spirit to say to you, as it did to me, anytime you wonder why God keeps giving people additional chances, it's because he does the same for us. For that, I am eternally grateful. I am grateful for a God that does not sicken of second chances, or third, or fourths, or fiftieths, as often as my people repent, I will forgive them, he tells us in the book of Mosiah. What's the important phrase there? Yes, as often, but what else? My people. God is trying to make of us his people, a chosen people, a peculiar people, one that he can claim as his own. To do so, may we fully claim him as ours. I testify that as we do so, as we come unto him and hold on to him, then he will make us holy and he can keep us holy. That is the promise he makes for all of us, if we'll just come unto him.